Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. This is going to be the non-conference recap, ACC conference preview, and I am your host, Adam Comero. I am here along with my buddy Ray Holloman. We're going to be talking over what we've seen so far, what we might project upcoming. There's a lot to go over, but we were recording this right before the New Year's. So first of all, Ray, do you have any... uh, Duke situational activities planned for the New Year's. You plan on uh, hanging out with Coach K, maybe uh, talking to him about uh, what kind of uh, spritzer you're going to drink once the uh, ball drops? Well, I have uh, other plans coming up. Uh, Much to uh, Coach K and Mickey Chagrin, I'm sure. Um, We are just a few minutes from my birthday, uh, which is December 31st. So I'll be very excited to uh, record this podcast and spend it with you and and some other strangers, which uh, frankly happy, happy twenty first, Ray. How's it feel to finally uh, be able to drink? That's uh, I'm looking forward to it. You know, Excellent. I've heard good things, so I'm very excited. Very nice. All right, so to to start it out, um, first of all, you had I'm not sure if you actually uh, accomplished this task, but uh, I know you have some uh, little girls, and you were planning on taking one roller skating. If Duke was going to go roller skating. Who do you think would be the biggest roller skating fanatic? This is the analysis everyone comes for. I demand a serious answer. I'm going with Javin Deloria. You know, uh, I think he'd be the biggest uh, menace out there. I don't think I would. I don't think I'd want to be on a uh, roller rink with a Deloria. Deloria and his his undisciplined energy, man, dude. It's all over <laughs> the place. I don't think he doesn't need he doesn't need wheels to go sliding around. Which you know, I, um, you know that that's just kind of the natural. His position, although he's been a lot better at that, right? Uh, I didn't, you know, the first name that popped in my head was Alex O'Connell for some reason. He seems like the kind of guy, you know, he's from Georgia, right? Like it just, it just seems like something an Alex O'Connell might do. I grew up in the sticks of North Carolina. Uh, we had skadiums when I was a kid. Skadiums? Uh, I never heard that yeah, term. I, I kind of associate it with like stuff to do in the sticks, but you know, maybe I'm, of course we had to drive 25 miles to get to the skadium or maybe 30, you know, I can't. Or exactly, but um, for some reason that's the name that pops in my head. So uh, that's what I'm going with. Also, uh, you know, uh, he has natural protection with the hair up there, you know, so he falls and he's he's, he's probably not going to feel it. He's got the mop of protection. Um, yeah. All right. So, but before, since we're going to talk a lot about non-conference, little trivia: um, What non-conference team, which has never been a part of the ACC, does Duke have the most wins against? Which non-conference team that has never been part of the ACC does Duke have the most wins against? Well, there you go. I had Maryland all queued up there, and you—it uh, has to be Maryland if it was uh, if it was excluding that. Um, has to be one of the more longer-running rivalries. And I will actually let, let me uh, get a little more specific. What what uh, non-conference team which has never been a part of the ACC does Duke under Coach K have the most wins against? So since eighty eighty one. So, uh, would have to be a team they played on a somewhat regular basis. So it's probably one of those teams like Michigan or somebody that they had a series against. Michigan is um, actually number two. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. So Michigan would be one of those teams they had a series against. Um, St. John's they did, but they actually lost a couple of games to St. John's. So it's probably St. John's not... is tied for number two. <laughs> well, there we go. So I'm banging around in the right. Uh, in the right mindset. Uh, UCLA was in there too, but I don't think that series lasted long enough. They used to be a big um, series with Duke. DePaul had a run in there. Uh, Georgetown had a run in there. Um, 
Yeah. See, you should have asked me who was number two because I was all over that one. You were all over that one. Uh-huh. It is a school in North Carolina. Not Elon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I forgot about the Phoenix. They, uh, excuse me, they're no longer the Phoenix, right? Or yeah, they used to be the Fighting Christians, is what the yes, what they happened. Did. It changed from the Fighting Christians to the Phoenix. Uh, UNC Greensboro. No. Uh, you're, you're better than this, Ray. You're better than this. How, how about how about a certain uh, team? There you go. I was about to say. I was about to use a Steph Curry reference to help yeah. you out. Okay, what coach? He's the only one Coach K was winless against. He's not. I, I will help you out. He's not currently coaching. So, like, who, who, coach, who Coach K is winless against playing more than one time? Non-conference, conference, any non-conference. Parameters here. Uh, winless against more than one time. Yep. Uh, okay, you want some help? I, I suppose. It's all right. Dangerous. He coached at a school which is now part of the ACC. Oh, uh, Coach Crum. Yep, Denny Crum, zero and three. Yeah. Yeah, some of them, uh, of course, the 86 title game being the most famous of those, which uh, which did not go in, in Duke's favor. All right, and lastly, the three teams that uh, Coach K – actually, you know what? Got coaches who Coach K has a losing record against at their current school. And, and by the way, these questions might seem negative, but it, it's, overall it goes to show you because there's so few examples – how yeah. amazing he really is because i mean guys he played more than once it's such a small list uh and is there any restriction here obviously not all acc right since we it's all about... non-conference and, it, and it's all yeah. just at one school interesting because i would i wonder what what's his head-to-head against mike bray um mike bray he only lost to in the acc so you're talking about three non-ACC teams. So the Mike Bray. So we're excluding ACC teams from this. You know what? I, I I think it might be better if I just go over it. All right, Sean Miller. He's 0 and 2 against at Arizona. Although he was actually 1 and 0 against Miller at Xavier. Yeah. Mike, Mike Mike Montgomery. He was 0 and 2 against at uh, Stanford. Um, what about Thad Mata? He lost to Thad Mata. Well, he beat him at Xavier, but then he lost that big game at Ohio State in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. No, I, for- I forgot to I forgot to combine those stats. I'll have to look over at Thad might Mata. Be. He but, might uh, be. Yeah. Yeah, Mike Montgomery 0 and 2 against uh, at Stanford. He was 1 and 0 against Montgomery at Cal. Um, then uh, Bill Self. He actually is on a. Uh, he's 1 and 3 against Self at Kansas. But one and zero at Tulsa, including an NCAA tournament victory, and one and zero against Self at Illinois. So overall three and three. But one and three against Bill Self at Kansas, one and two against Nolan Richardson at Arkansas, and lastly he is he was three and four versus your old buddy Jim Calhoun. Yeah, yeah, that uh, sounds about right. Um, that's, uh, you know, UConn, whenever they would make the tournament, uh, whenever they made the Final Four, they won the darn thing. Um, yeah, it speaks to a uh, high level of excellence by the by the program. Um, yeah, actually, the only other team, I mean, Cal, he was, he's one and two against. Um, not not Cal Perry or Calhoun, um, California. Yeah. And every other team, 
any team he's played more than once, besides the teams I've mentioned, he is at least equal or has a winning record. I mean, that's really remarkable when you think about it. All right, and Coach K at Duke, there's only three other teams he has a losing record against. Those three teams, just one matchup. There is uh, Wagner from 1983, 0-1. There is Pitt, um, 0-1 in 2007. That was just before they joined the ACC. So that that counts for non-conference. Remember that game? I don't. LeVance Fields hit a three-pointer like at the – it was uh, – yeah, it came right down to the wire. Aaron Gray, LeVance Fields, that was the pit team. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a big game. Uh, you know, those were both top ten teams, as I recall. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I want to say it was a LeVance Fields jumper that won that game. It was a really tight game. Might have gone to overtime. And the last one, can you remember 97 tourney? Uh, I'm sorry, you, you sent me down a, a rabbit hole about, uh, about uh, yeah, it was Vance Fields' three-pointer in overtime against Pitt. So uh, what was the question? <laughs> the last one where, where K is 0-1 against a team, um, 97 tourney. Uh, 97 tourney, God, sham God. Yes, and, sir, uh, and Austin Crozier. Uh, yeah, yeah, yep. remember yep. that. Well, they beat Murray State in the opening round and then lost to uh, – well, that was a heck of a Duke team, though, uh, because they were like a, a group of mismatched parts. But uh, Mike Krzyzewski coached them to a 12-4 and record in the ACC that year. They, they took home a share of the ACC regular season title back when that really meant something because, you know, that was – Tim Duncan was a junior. Uh, Vince Carter was in the ACC. Antoine Jamison was in the ACC. I mean, it was a tremendous amount of talent um, in the league at that time. And somehow he coached that group with Chris Carroll playing center against – you know, Tim Duncan to the share of the ACC title. Yeah, and I mean, those are the only teams he has a losing record against. I mean, it's really unbelievable when you think about it. I mean, the only other teams he has more than one loss. I mean, uh, Michigan, he was 16-5, 6-3 against Fisher. I know I know a lot of them got kind of wiped out. Um, well, but, but you don't get wins, and they don't – they become – the losses don't go away, right? Like the other team just vacates the wins. So on the Duke ledger, the record would still be the same. It just, it wouldn't show up as it's still a loss for Duke, but it's not a win for Michigan. I believe is the way that works with the NCAA. I don't know. I mean, they, they played the game. So it counts in my head. Um, yeah. yeah St. John's 16 and four, uh, Temple 13 and two, UCLA eight and two, Kansas seven and five, Indiana seven and three, Georgetown six and three, Kentucky six and two, Illinois five and two, Vanderbilt five and two, and Purdue three and two. It's the only teams that he's lost more than once against. It's yeah. it's incredible. I mean, this this stuff is going to be kind of poured over once K retires, which hopefully isn't soon. But it's just remarkable when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's uh, you know the greatest college coach of my lifetime, that's for sure. And uh, you know, he's he's he has such uh, longevity. These other guys just don't have. You know, the, the, the combination of, uh, of high peaks and, and longevity is something you don't see and, uh, you know, you may not see again. There's not a lot of guys are going to get – people are going to take chances on an unknown coach at a, at a major power like Duke um, and give them the opportunity to do that because you have to be a major power to do that. You know, if you're not Duke or Kansas or Kentucky, you're not going to hang on to this coach. You know, UCLA, Indiana, those traditional blue bloods, you're not going to hang on to the coach uh, long enough. So – I bet, you know, I bet Dick Vitale would recommend a certain guy who does not have a job right now who is uh, looking for a job, who Dick Vitale is really all about and feels like he is just an innocent victim in all of this. Oh, Ricky P. Ricky yeah. P. just wants to coach. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's it's ridiculous. All right, so um, before we uh, go over the non-conference and what's happened, let's like look back at some of 2018's top Duke storylines because it was an interesting year last year. There's not many college teams or really anywhere in college basketball where uh, a team would use two high-usage bigs, and that was a question coming into the season. So that was, that was I think, the main storyline, how Duke was able to be so productive with those two high-usage bigs, especially with Bagley committing very late. Carter was supposed to be the focal point. But overall, I would say Grayson's, just his overall 2018, I don't, I'm not going to say what many um, – fans or put it in the way many uh, Duke fans will and say what Grayson went through the previous uh, three years because I mean he was in control of most of what happened so it's not what he went through it's just there was a lot of drama surrounding him so it, it was cool to see a mostly undramatic senior year I thought his leadership really improved over time he's never going to be the most verbal guy but I thought that he handled himself really well and it's worth asking if he's going to be at least in this time with K there the way they recruit the way that the one and done goes is he going to be the last Duke player we'll see at least for a while with such a huge role on offense staying for four seasons I mean his last three he was a focal point yeah, I mean, I don't know if he'll be the last. Now, is he the last of Mike Krzyzewski? Maybe, um, but that maybe says something more about how much longer you can realistically expect Mike Krzyzewski yeah. um, to coach. But I think you'll see guys that, that come along like that. There's going to be those guys who are, you know, the borderline four-star, five-star uh, kind of players who are just sort of built for the college game, and they'll stick around. You know, we've seen it at Duke. Now, you, you know, even with guys who've gone on to careers, you know, Kyle Singler, you know, spent a little time in the NBA, but you know he's a guy who stuck around for four years, had a major role in offense all four years. And granted, I'm going back to before the one and done era. But John Shire, I mean, I don't know that John Shire is a guy that a doesn't get recruited in this era, and then b you know doesn't stick around for four years. Um, you know, Mason Plumlee is another guy that stuck around for four years. Um, so I think you're going to see players that stick around and have a big role. Um, you know, uh, moving forward, I think it's just sort of it's almost it's not the luck of the draw, but it's just you know, there's, there's that sort of sweet spot, you know, finding the guys that, that, that uh, you know, it makes sense for them to stay around for four years and are still good enough to contribute. And you can do that at this level because the talent level um, with the one and done rule being what it is, is diluted in college basketball. So you're going to be able to find guys like that. I mean, there's a chance, you know, what are we going to look back and say about Alex O'Connell? You know, maybe he takes off a little bit at the end of this year. You know, could he be a guy like that? Obviously, not going to have the huge usage from day one that uh, Grayson Allen did. Um, didn't have that championship moment his freshman year. But, you know, I, I think there'll be someone that comes along um, that's sort of in that range. So I don't think Grayson's going to be the last of those. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, I really – I'm not going to pretend to follow recruiting closely or have any desire to follow recruiting closely. But in the in the little bit I've seen – out of Duke's not not the big guy they just recruited, but um, the other guys that Carewell got, I really like them. They're they're not quite as highly ranked, but they have an attitude about them. They it seems like they're big defensive guys. And the thing that struck me most is how much their attitudes and the way they played reminded me of Chris Carewell, which is in my opinion a fantastic thing. So yeah, I mean, I, you can never have enough guys, you know, him and Brian Davis, guys like that, that are just those, you know, absolute nails leaders. And yeah, maybe we'll see that come out. You talk about, a, you know, like a Boogie Ellis, for example, he seems like yeah, he's one of them. 
to profile as a four-year player for Duke. So, you know, I, I, I think it'll happen. I, I don't think Grayson's the last of a of a breed in that in that regard. Yeah, and then, all right, so another Duke uh, 18, 2018 storyline, full-time zone, wasn't just kind of throwing it in at random points in games. Like, most people think Duke played a lot more zone in 2015 than they did. Not really. Um, so they went to that full-time zone. Um, I would say Bagley speaking up after uh, an ESPN commentator. I'm not even going to mention his name. Um, called him selfish and just said a lot of stupid stuff. And... NBA players, they, they will always speak up, but college players, we don't see that as much. And I really liked Bagley speaking up for himself. That was nice to see. Um, there was the foolishness of not DeVal, but the reaction to DeVal um, retweeting a dunk after they lost to UNC and everyone basically going absolutely nuts. And it just basically, it, it rained down on him throughout the rest of his time and even a little bit after, I mean, there were, there was a, uh, social media can be crazy after the season ended. He, him and Bagley retweeted the same thing. It was a coach talking or a player talking about how coaches need to let guys grow. And if you pull a player every time they make a mistake, then it's going to be tough to let them grow and learn from the mistakes and it's going to crush their confidence and Deval and Bagley retweeted. And again, it's just like this, the entire fan base just crushed them, but ignored Bagley. And it's, it's just, it's very interesting how this stuff happens. So, well, I, w- I wish it wasn't a story. Unfortunately, Deval became a story in some ways, just with social media and the overreaction to it. Um, then there was Carter and Trent. They actually spoke out after the season about their roles, how everything didn't quite go according to plan. That was interesting just because you never really hear that before. Um, then um, let's see. Uh, the Kansas game, um, that had three big things, at least in my opinion. Coach K's defensive choices, which were very interesting to me. They were they changed drastically at times from the way Duke was succeeding prior to that game. Um, there was Carter's fifth foul, the block charge call, which was much debated, um, and Grayson's last shot. I mean, as a senior, it would have been really nice instead uh, to see him make a game-winning shot that wouldn't have sent the game to overtime. If he'd made it, it would have ended the game. And instead, got a little toilet bowl rim out, and that was really unfortunate. Um, then uh, coming into this year, my, my, my boy Buckmeyer doing the Carlton dance at the 2018-2019 CTC, that was just the highlight of my life right there because Buckmeyer is just the champion of this team, the star of this team. If you don't know, you should. Uh, then the Kentucky demolition, nobody saw that. I predicted Duke would lose by 10 uh, the way I saw that game going, which just goes to show I project players and what's happened. I mean, with so much new talent coming into both teams, you don't really know what's going to happen. And I sure didn't because Duke just basically ran him over with a truck. And again, nobody saw that coming. I think it's Cal's worst loss of his career. It was ridiculous. And uh, then there's Mount Zion. Zion Williamson, the, the six billion uh, followers on his Instagram and just everything he does, if he breathes, it's a big deal. And I'm trying to think if anyone immediately arriving at Duke has gotten that attention. To me, it's like the bit... I haven't seen this much attention on a Duke player. I mean, there's always a lot, but since basically Reddick's senior year, where everything he did was a big deal, it's, it's crazy to me. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Allen, in the midst of all the 
I'm talking about, I'm talking about like real attention, like on actual <laughs> like. Yeah, I know what you're saying though. But I mean, you know, so uh, yeah, he's up there. I mean, Jabari Parker had a lot of attention coming into Duke. That was a huge recruit um, that really changed the fortunes of the program um, at that time in terms of recruiting. You know, it really put uh, you know put Duke back. Uh, you know, I'm talking top. from the outside though. Fans like yeah, we always. I mean, these are top recruits and Kyrie and uh, and and all those guys. But uh, yeah. I mean, from the outside, I mean Zion Williamson like. People who do not watch college basketball, they are watching Zion Williamson. They're watching Duke for Zion Williamson. Yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, when have you ever seen a man that's that size that can move that, you know, with, with that level of agility, just being able to, uh, you know, stop, change direction, and elevate? It's, it's really I mean, not, not, since, not since Mike Buckmar. When you asked, uh, I mean, fair, uh, when you asked the question, you know, to start the year, what are you most excited about? My answer was Zion Williamson, you know, just – really wanted to see what he could do uh, on the court because he's such a unique unique skill set player um so yeah he's been nothing sort of uh phenomenal and uh yeah you know he probably does have the most uh followers and you know there's a more mature social media landscape out there now and things like that but um but yeah it's 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 musty tv you know it's kind of like trey young you know to start last year where you would just turn the game on to see what trey young was going to do at oklahoma so um yeah it's uh it's 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 amazing and it's amazing to think you know a lot of people thought he was going to go to clemson and with all due respect to clemson it would almost be a shame to have him locked away and little john um you know versus the uh, the level of exposure and playing on the stage at, at cameron all right so real, real quickly uh my preseason predictions um where this team would rely on transition especially live ball turnovers more than any in recent history they'd be better on defense than expected they'd be worse on offense than expected Worse, I didn't mean bad, just not quite as efficient as they have been in recent years or in the entire Ken Palm era. I said Jack White would be a huge key. I did not see him being that key so quickly out of the gate. I said coaching should, or I I would hope it would be fluid game, not just game to game, but within the games. I said they're shooting from the perimeter as well as the free throw line was a huge concern. I mean, that was my big things going in, and... uh, yeah, I think most of it is really held true, which is why it's going to be fun to kind of ask you some questions. I'm going to pretend you're a Magic 8-Ball or Miss Cleo where you're going to tell me what's going to happen, um, either with bold predictions or just uh, using some gray area realistically because this team, it's fascinating in the way their transition attack is different from the half court. It's like two totally different teams. But overall in the 12 non-conference games they've really been tested and by tested i mean at least their starters playing most of the game in three of the 12 games would you say that's more or and i'm talking about uh auburn gonzaga and texas tech would you say is more or less than you expected well i mean uh, i suppose it depends on what we mean by tested you know they had to you know the kentucky game you know they, they had high caliber athletes on the other side too so i'm saying uh, that's why i said the starters playing most of the game yeah, well, I don't know how many minutes they play, but, you know, I mean, t- to me, you know, your first game in a big stage like that, probably, I mean, obviously we're talking about pretty arbitrary definition of what's a test, but, you know, the teams that we thought were going to give them trouble. And then, honestly, you know, teams have actually tested them where the starters have uh, had to play a little longer than we expected. Like, that Army game turned out to be a very good um, lesson in tempering expectations with a young team and, you know, remembering that you're never as good as you seem and never as bad as you don't. You know, it really, that's the worst Duke has looked um defensively this season i think um except for gonzaga except for the first half against gonzaga um of course 
Um, but, uh, you know, Army really did a nice job against Duke, and uh, they had to figure out things on the fly uh, against that team. So, you know, I mean, I think uh, uh, they've probably been tested maybe a little less in that sense than you would have expected. Uh, you know, the Indiana game, you know, um, maybe expected a little bit, a little bit more of a challenge there. Although, again, Indiana coming to Cameron has been an invitation to these sorts of runaway um, games. Um, but yeah, you know, teams haven't quite figured out Duke. I think, um, you know, you'll certainly see that more as the year comes uh, along, uh, as the conference teams come along, that have a lot more familiarity with what they're trying to do, you know, a lot better coaching, uh, well, better coaching in general. Uh, but, you know, you started to see that in the Texas Tech game, what a team looked like when they were able to um, put a game plan together for Duke. You know, Texas Tech really played a smart game against Duke. Um, they did a great job of uh, getting in the lane against Duke um, defensively, um, drawing charges um, as, as, as dubious as some of them may have been. You know, it certainly was was uh, was what they were doing. So, you know, they've probably been tested maybe a little less than we expect, but we've seen enough there that I think we're starting to we, – we have a pretty good sense of what the challenges are for this team and what this team does well uh, coming out of the non-conference. Yeah, and that's why when I when I kind of track stats, I do it game to game because if you just look at the whole – I mean, this Duke team, which is full of wings – and really, really, really talented athletic wings, they are basically made to just crush the skull out of any team that's not quite as talented because, I mean, they are so good in transition. They are remarkably efficient in transition, and they just pile up these stats. And it's just, it's everything can really kind of skew the stats from the few games where they were actually forced to play half court so that's why game to game it's very interesting to see and uh yeah i mean because i mean the talent when the talent level is just a little bit off duke's gonna crush a team and that's why there have been some crazy stats some crazy margins of victories but it's not all gonna go like that in acc as there's an encyclopedia's worth of basketball history to tell us the game's gonna slow down basically it's teams are as you said they have a blueprint on duke Teams know how to prepare for them. I mean, even RJ and Zion, who are both lefties, teams are going to start overplaying them. There's going to be adjustments. It's not that Duke won't be able to handle it. There's just going to be constant adjustments. It's going to have to be fluid. So to start out with a uh, serious, very serious question, what's the deal with my boy Mike Buckmeyer? He's been terrible so far. So I take away a scally. Would you take away a scally? And are people, uh, who, are people who use the term scally the worst people ever? I mean, they're on the list. Um, you know, they're right up there with people who refer to championships as a ship, I think. Is, uh, <laughs> that is so true. Is the short list of those. The, the Venn diagram of those two sets of people is a dot. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I've said my opinion on him all along is basically that Duke really wants to see what they have in R.J. Barrett. They have a good idea of what they have in, uh, in Buckmeyer. So, you know, they just need to get Barrett some, some playing time, right? So I, I think that's that's really what's happening. Look, if you look up the stats per 100 possessions last year, you can look it up. He was Duke's best player, and that is not just kind of throwing it out there. The stats tell the story. I don't care if he played like six minutes. The stats tell the story. Science so, is science, man. Exactly. Numbers never lie. So Duke struggled on defense, to put it lightly, against Gonzaga. I believe it was uh, their, first, their fifth worst non-conference efficiency in a game pre-New Year's in the Ken Palm era. But since then... Um, each game, pace turnovers, especially live ball turnovers, which I emphasized in the preseason, they've gone way up since Maui. Would you say that's more a credit or a product of Duke's defense, 
or is it level of competition? And yes, I understand it's obviously going to be a combo, but I'd appreciate it if you would answer in a louder, more obnoxious and more extreme way, like an ESPN uh, professional would want you to. That's uh, what I do here. Um, facts versus volume as a, uh, as a local radio host around here in DC always says. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right about that, uh, that it's gotten better. So here's some numbers just to, to, to back up what we're saying here. Um, and I think, you know, if you want to talk about the Duke defensive turnaround this season or the defensive improvement this season in one stat, it's steals, right? So the first six games of the year through the Gonzaga game where Duke had a season low five steals, they had 50 steals in six games. So that's an average of 6.25 per game. Not so great. Not terrible, but not so great. Since then, the number of steals have gone 11, 19, 15, 16, 12, 15. So in the six games since, they're averaging 14.7 steals per game. Now, yeah, some of that is level of competition, but that 15 at the end, of course, is the Texas Tech game. You know, Indiana is thrown in there. So there is some quality uh, competition uh, that comes in there. And if there is one thing you want to be on, one list you want to be on uh, for Duke, uh, it is the season uh, steals list. Let me uh, read to you the top five uh, Duke teams all time in steals. 2001, 1991, 1986, 2002, 1999. So you have five teams right there. Of those, you have two national champions leading the list. You have Duke's uh, legendary 86 team that lost Louisville that we talked about in the national championship. You have the 2002 team, which was dominant on both sides of the ball, and Boozer was fouled, by the way. And then you have the 1999 team, which is you know regarded as arguably one of Duke's best teams. So when you look at, at, at Duke being able to exert its will and do what it wants to, um, that's really the stat you start with. So that's where we're at on stats. So this year, by the way, the 2001 team has a record 411 steals. Uh, 1999 was second with 362. That's 10.5 per game. Um, the Duke team right now, level of competition and all, is a caveat, 11.5 steals per game on a pace for 460. So that number will go down, but that gives you an idea of what you've seen so far. So the question is, um, is that merely a byproduct of playing Stetson and uh, Hartford and teams like that? I don't think it is. I think it's uh, a result of Duke improving, uh, frankly. I think they're playing a lot better. I think, uh, you know, Trey Jones... Um, you know, coming into the year, she just had all the quotes about how he's as good as Wojo and Amaker and um, things like that. And we both said, OK. Um, and then you watched him in the Kentucky game. Maybe I have to go back and rewatch the first two or three games. I didn't think he was very good in the first two or three games defensively. Like, it didn't stand out to me. And, you know, again, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I should go back and watch it. But um, you've noticed him uh, exert as well a lot more uh, recently. Uh, every time Duke needs to play, it seems like uh, Trey Jones is the guy that's doing it on defense. You know, that Texas Tech game when they were down um, in the second half, uh, you know, Trey Jones comes out, picks up a steal, you know, goes for the bucket. Um, it really changed the complexion of that game. I think he had six steals in that game by itself. But it's not just Trey. I think R.J. Barrett has done a much better job. If you just watch the way he plays, he's more engaged. He's in his defensive stance more often. And Zion Williamson has been fantastic on defense, like absolutely fantastic. Like the level of commitment he has on the defensive end is is tremendous. So you couple that buy-in and the gradual improvement in talent, and then just the recognition of what teams are trying to do to you. There is not going to be as much backdoor cuts and um, things like that uh, on the AAU level as you're going to see um, against Duke because teams that aren't as good as you, they know how to play smarter than you. Um, and Duke's had to adjust to that, talking about the Army game, for example. So 
in my opinion, I think it's a maturation of the team just getting better at um, the craft of playing defense, and now they're playing at a very, at a very high level. Yeah, no, I agree with, with what you said, and, I, and later on, I do want to get more into Zion's impact on defense compared to Trey Jones's impact on Z, on on defense. I do want to see, and, and I will say, the rotations and recovery is so much better in the last uh, kind of crop of games from where it started out. But I do want to see how they play against teams which do have more of a trusted playmaking point guard. Because, I mean, they started out with Kentucky, and this is, it could sound hypocritical because Duke has a freshman point guard, but Kentucky, they had um, they, they had a freshman. Then um, Auburn, they had a better point guard, and mm-hmm. Auburn played better against Duke. Gonzaga, they had an experienced point guard, um, and they played better against Duke. There was a lot of trust in that offense. I mean, Auburn's point guard, Jared Harper, Gonzaga's point guard, uh, Perkins, Josh Perkins. It just made such a big difference. And then immediately after, Indiana came in with a freshman point guard. And that could, I mean, it was like Kentucky where they just got run over by a truck. So I am interested in seeing teams that have a better point guard and how Trey does in that situation with the Texas Tech. Trey was unbelievable. I will not take away anything, but I will just add a little bit of context in terms of uh, Texas Tech's offense with Matt Mooney at point guard. Mooney played for uh, South Dakota last year against Duke and an 18 points, uh, points per game score. He had like four assists or something. He was held to like one of five shooting. He turned it over six times. His turnover rate was like 44% um, last year against Duke and against uh, Duke this year was 46%. So I honestly don't think he ever wants to see Duke again, but at the same time, great job by Trey. So, I mean, there's always context that goes into it and Matt Mooney is not going to be the point guard. You are probably going to base Trey's defense off of but the point is how he looks as you said coach K was making some crazy comparisons or so it seemed uh before the year started everyone thinks he just started to say it now no this was going on before the year started and I just said you know what let's let's tone it down a little bit I hope he's as good as Derek Thornton who was a fantastic on-ball point guard and it looked at first to me like Trey was letting guys kind of get into him to get into his body. Now, as you said, he t- he's kind of trusting himself more. He's taking more chances. He's really getting out on guys. He is attacking on defense, which is exactly the kind of guys. When I said I like the guys who Carowell is recruiting, these are the type of guys, these extended um, on-ball pressuring defenders, which we just – it's tough for freshmen to do that of any ilk. So Trey – what he's been able to do against any competition, it is really nice to see. But I will temper the expectations a little bit. I will be the party pooper and say, let's just see kind of how it goes throughout the first part of the ACC schedule. And if he, if he keeps it up, by all means, then jump on board because he's been fantastic. Yeah, and I think, you know, for this team, you're looking at a team that's winning games defensively early in the year. And it's hard to remember the last time that was – that was true of, you know, Duke, even the, <clears throat> excuse me, the 2015 title team, you know, was not winning games on its defensive uh, uh, efforts uh, this early in the year. So you go out against Texas Tech and you play a game as badly as you can in the half court offense and you still win that game, um, you know, and it's it's due to your defense. And it's due, of course, you know, to the exceptional 
um, transition offense that it sets up. So, you know, that's, that's a, that's a great thing to see, you know, coming into this year, I think we, we were going in with the idea that, um, you know, the defense was going to be a question mark as, as, as it has been in, in several years. And, you know, I feel fairly comfortable saying this team can play uh, high level defense um, throughout the year, you know, and not just with the freshmen, but, you know, the, the rotation pieces, the fantastic four sort of rotation pieces that you can throw in there. And then defensively, you're talking about white, um, you know, and Delarier uh, and Marquise Bolden being able to come in and, and give you different things defensively. So, you know, I think uh, it, it's a team that, that right now is already winning games on defense, and that is uh, puts them far ahead of, of a lot of recent Duke teams. Listen, you may have questioned their defense. I, I was all over it. I was all over it, and I am a prophet. So, um, but one thing we both agreed on, which isn't talked about enough, in my opinion, is Duke's ability to push pace off their opponents, just regular misses, and even their opponents made shots, which typically isn't transi- doesn't lead to transition opportunities because that's as impressive as anything they've shown during non-conference season where they can just turn anything into transition opportunities and really force teams to play at their pace even if they're not forcing turnovers. Like somehow Gonzaga, I mean, Gonzaga wasn't, hugely uh a, a real fast game but like it was still pretty fast and i mean early on in the season as you mentioned they weren't creating turnovers but these games were still really high paced and i think it just goes to show i i think that really is a credit to trey as much as anything i mean he has more assists in transition than even in half court which is rare i mean actually most of the duke players they have more assists I think every Duke player besides R.J. Barrett who handles the ball um, even a little bit, they have more assists in transition than half court, which just goes to show you how much they depend on it, at least at this point. But Trey is just, he's a fantastic passer. His vision, his anticipation, and his accuracy in transition is as good as I've seen from any point guard at Duke. Yeah, I think uh, there's two reasons why the transition game is so good. Uh, and I think it starts with uh, when the ball comes off the rim, it's moving up the court. There's really not, you know, I guess with the exception of Mark Beath Bolden when he's in, there's not the sort of lumbering uh, center that's holding the ball or, or, or the power forward that can't make a decision. As soon as that ball comes off the rim on a miss, um, it's moving up the court. The outlet passes are really good. Um, both RJ and uh, Zion are, are quick with the ball in their hand. So if they're, if they're taking it on the deck, then it's moving up quickly. Um, and then, yeah, the second reason, as you said, is, is, is Trey Jones running it all. You know, the comparison that I've made uh, with him in, in, in that regard, which may not go over well with the Duke fan base, is Kendall Marshall. Like, he, he, he moves the ball up like I think Kendall Marshall used to with, with Carolina. He used to always say he throws he, – he doesn't throw passes. He throws fly routes. He throws go routes, you know. The ball just zips, you know. He has that great vision, and he just gets it up. And uh, it's, it's really something that it's been a while since we've seen – uh, a Duke point guard uh, doing that so effectively and so regularly, but that's what gives this team such a high floor is that they turn anything into a fast break, just like those, you know, Carolina teams, the 2011, 2012, you know, era Carolina teams in particular uh, did. They were so good at getting the ball inbounds and getting it up before you got back. And, and it gets down to, you know, having a point guard that can get it ahead and having wings that can run and, and can finish. So, yeah, I think that absolutely has been one of the more impressive things. Um, and that's, I don't remember a team at Duke that has done that so well. It is really hard to turn a made basket into a transition bucket, and they do it 
somewhat regularly. That's why, you know, I've said this is the best transition team Duke has had since 2001. And I don't, I don't even think it's debatable. You know, maybe I'm overlooking something, but I, you know, to me, this is the only team that goes back to that era of uh, Duke basketball and holds its own in transition. You know who reminded me of Kendall Marshall? Um, I, I, I agree. Kendall Marshall was a, he was a special player in uh, college. Scotty Machado. He's actually killing. I mean, the G league is what it is, but he's killing it there. And he played for Iona. And uh, he is, uh, I think, I think he's an NBA. I mean, I just like the, they, he reminds me a lot of, uh, of uh, Kendall Marshall and the way they play. I would say, I mean, this is even more dangerous than you, than your comparison. There's a lot of Bobby Hurley because just in transition, I'm talking about strictly in transition, no other part of his game, but transition just in the way He's so he sees things before they happen, and he can throw at such long distances so accurately. I mean, there was there was a one play this season where Jack White he threw an outlet which was just it wasn't even close, and Trey was falling out of bounds and threw an alley oop as he was falling out of bounds to Zion for the jam, and Zion got the credit. And we're not not necessarily the credit, but kind of the exposure for the dunk because anything he does is going to look monstrous and deservedly so. But that's one of the best passes I've ever seen in transition. As Trey was falling out, it was just a perfect pass, almost half court to Zion. And these are just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember that too. I couldn't tell you what game it was from, but I do specifically remember that happening where he's falling out of the sideline on the right sideline as you were watching on TV. And yeah, I, I remember that. And you know, it reminded me of a play that the old the '99 team used to run. They would run if they had an out of bounds um, from the hash mark. Uh, you know, on the offensive side, they would throw alley oops from there. It was just you know that's how special that team was. You know, Corey Maggette or Elton Brand or somebody would go up and get it, but that was a play they would regularly run. You know, and it kind of reminded me of that, although it's even harder because you're falling out of bounds versus standing there with two feet. But, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a really uh, he's a really exceptional passion. He's actually he's been a lot better, you know, than I than I uh, expected, I think, you know, coming in, even with the Tyus, even with the Tyus legacy. Um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of things in the game of basketball that he's he's better at than than his older brother is uh, as sacrilegious as that may be to say, um, you know, uh, with a Duke fan base. Yeah, I mean, not nearly as good an outside shooter, but they both have that it factor down the stretch. When you need a play, he'll give it to you. And defensively, it's not even close. Trey yeah. is much better. And I, I think one thing that, uh, you know, I, yeah, I can bring it up now. Um, just the fact that, like, it's really interesting what kind of guys just are not able to finish with both hands um, these days when they get into high-level college ball, it just stands out like a sore thumb, sticks out like a, a sore thumb. And that's something that Trey, it's just, he can do right away. I mean, the best I've ever seen is Kyrie Irving. I don't like to compare anyone to him because I've never seen anyone as good finishing with either hand. I mean, he he's talked about how we would just spend hours growing up with diff, perfecting different spins with either hand. I mean, that's something which that didn't just come naturally to him. Kyrie really worked on that, but Trey is able to finish. And that's something that I hope RJ Barrett can improve on. I hope Zion can improve on. And uh, Tyus, he wasn't a master of finishing with his uh, opposite hand either. So that's something which it's very it should be valued more. And with Trey, that's a big deal, especially with how much Duke is relying on transition. But with how great the transition is, the half court's another story. The shooting's terrible. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. I mean, 
I, I don't want to say everyone's going to zone them because we've seen in prior years just sinking off and daring teams to shoot. That's almost as effective as anything else you could do. You don't have to zone, especially if you're not a zone team. You don't want to, you don't want to change your whole game plan for one opponent. Um, or you don't want to change your whole kind of defensive uh, identity for one opponent. But um, there is one crazy in the in the three games in which teams have played over 15 possessions of zone against Duke. Duke is averaging a uh, 0.5 PPR in those games, half a point per possession, which is beyond awful. And I mean, every stat kind of correlates with that. And even non zone, just shooting. I mean. When Duke is forced to actually attempt to run offense, it's not going well. So how will coaches game plan against Duke um, besides trying to slow the game down? I mean, will they see more zone? Or as I said, will teams just sink down low, dare Duke to beat them from outside? What has Duke shown so far which makes you believe that kind of more set offense, more efficient set offense could be coming. I did see some positives from Gonzaga. I saw them working through Zion more in the post. That gave me hope. And then it stopped. But hey, that might have stopped just because it wasn't necessary. And hey, just let these kids run up and down against teams that are overmatched. So it's really tough to tell. There's just not a big enough sample size, which allows me to say, oh, this will happen. It shouldn't be a problem. It's still, it's a, it's a big question, at least in what I'm seeing. So I think there's three ways that you can go about um, fixing the half court offense, which you're, you're absolutely right is, is a problem. Um, and it's a serious problem because uh, as great as the transition offense is at some point, um, you know, all those live ball steals are going to bounce out of bounds. Uh, you, you're going to, you're not going to, the offensive rebounds are going to, are tip off your fingers, right? You know, we were looking at the stats the other day about the percentage of possessions that Duke plays in half court versus transition. And I think it was roughly, you know, a two to one ratio. Um, even at this point where you're going to see the maximum number of transition opportunities because you're playing the lower level of competition. So you're going to play a lot more possessions in your half court um, than you are in transition, particularly uh, against the ACC. So I think there's three things that Duke can do um to try and uh and and stimulate some action there so one you mentioned was zion in the post so the great thing about zion in the post is almost every time they feed him there uh the other team double teams him right so you've already started making the defense move you started making the defense make decisions uh zion's actually a very good passer uh i think um and uh you know he's going to be able to uh grow into that role to kick the ball out you're just going to get some some movement in the defense that way um, and if they don't double team him, who exactly is going to stop Zion uh, in the post? So they need to do uh, a little bit more there, but that opportunity is there. Um, the second thing we've seen that I think has worked for this team in spurts, you know, the one team, I believe it was Fairfield, that played a decent amount of zone against them. Um, and then Duke just completely struggled against it until about 10 minutes to go in the game um, is uh, working out of the high post more. Uh, we've seen success with that with both R.J. Barrett and Zion. I, I feel like Duke should work Zion there a little bit more. They tend to do it more with R.J. Um, but it's worked fairly well. You get a, a dangerous scorer in a dangerous position. Uh, and both of those guys make quick decisions with the ball, so it's not just going to stick. Um, so I think you're going to have some success working out of the high post there and just moving the ball around again because you're making the defense collapse there. So, you know, we were talking earlier about Bonzi Colson, you know, and that was – what made Bonzi Colson so dangerous in the free throw line was not that he was necessarily a great shooter or whatever. Uh, he made quick decisions. He could shoot it. He could pass. He could do all these things, but he did it quickly, you know, and that's what you need to do. And I think both of those guys can. 
So I think that's an opportunity. And the third opportunity, you know, that we've talked about before, too, is just letting Trey run the offense a little bit more. He's great when he's going to the basket. You know, defenses have to account for him. Um, and then you're going to have some opportunities where the defense gets sucked in. You have open three-point shooters. That's going to help with the three-point shooting. Guys in college can hit three-pointers. It's not about being able to hit the shot. It's about having the space to hit the shot. So, you know, I think those are three ways that Duke can um, run a little bit more structured offense and um, up that half court. But they're absolutely going to have to. I mean, that is the the, the, the question this team has to solve. Um, they have everything else in place really right now. The question is either they're going to, you know, can they become a great, uh, at least a passable half court offensive team? If so, they can win the national championship. If they can't, they're going to get bounced. Um, it's just not going to end well. You cannot win a championship just running up and down the floor. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, Zion's passes out of the post. I mean, as I said, there's just – it's either – I mean, this is both. It's not a good sample size. It's not a legit sample size, and the, the stats are not good. I mean, teams are uh, – his teammates are shooting three for nine from his passes out of the post. Um from uh, when the defense uh, commits two for six on a hard double team. Well, you know, like you said, small sample yeah. sizes, three for nine, you get one rimmed out the other way, and all of a sudden, you know, you're you're talking about something that's a little bit more passable. So hard to draw too much on a on a on a nine sample on a nine possession sample size. But you know, I feel like we've seen it um, have some success, and then the skill set is there. You can see the skill set. So you know, you can see how those pieces will come together. And the thing is, you don't have to be great. You just need to be passable. I mean, that Texas Tech game, as nice as it was that Duke won that game, the offense, even with the, um, you know, the the performance of the transition uh, offense part of that, that was still just, it was a, a record terrible game for Duke uh, offensively. They had a uh, 84.6 offensive efficiency in that game. I was going back uh, through the stats year by year. Um, that is the eighth worst game that they've had in the Ken Palm era. So that is, you know, a historically bad team. You know, when you look back um, at where those other ones were, they had one uh, in 2017, the 55-50 loss to Miami. They had one in 2013. And then the rest of them, you have to go back to before the one and done era when Duke had some, you know, talent deficiencies here and there. You know, the 2009 team, you know, when Villanova just absolutely destroyed them in Boston, and then they lost to Clemson 2008, 2007. 2006 had one, 2005 had one. Now, granted, there's some decent teams sprinkled in there. Um, certainly 2006. Uh, but um, but you know that was just a historically bad uh game uh for Duke in in terms of the offense, and it's all about the half court. So you know they're gonna have to figure this out. They're gonna have to try some different things um, because this is not uh it's not sustainable. There's gonna be a game where you don't have um, you know, a team turning it over on 30. Virginia is not going to turn it over on 30% of possessions, no matter how good defense you play. So you're going to have to be able to, to bring along the, the half court. I mean, you never know. Jack Salt could be. Well, I mean, uh, he certainly showed promise, right? He's, he set so many screens. I think he's ready for promotion. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, it still counts as half court, but even so, like offensive rebounds, it's like they need to just, the more opportunities they get, and the more they don't have, they the more they can shoot without teams being without the defense being set, the better the better opportunities they have, and they shouldn't have to always rely on that. They, when it happens, it should be great, and they're so talented that it's going to keep happening a lot. But you can't rely on it 
to be everything. I mean, even like out-of-bounds plays, which we're so used to, Duke is always consistently, historically fantastic under Coach K, especially out-of-bounds. They started out the year, I mean, Trey Jones got about like 8 to 10 assists in the first couple games just off strictly out-of-bounds passes to a corner shooter or, or to Zion um, close to the basket, and that's pretty much evaporated. So, I mean, just anything which requires X's and O's seems to be a struggle right now. So hopefully that will improve. You mentioned that uh, Trey initiating offense I think that is something we should definitely talk about. But right now, Alex O'Connell is actually currently tied with his dad, which – oh, is, is it Dave? I feel bad. I'm forgetting the name. Sorry, I'm not an O'Connell family is, biographer. He has not reached levels of Perky Plumley or uh, or anyone like that yet. So uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Dave O'Connell. Um, but uh, they're, they're tied in career points at Duke. So how do you feel, how do you feel that holiday uh, – that holiday feast was at the O'Connell household was a little, was it a uh, you little You know, tense? what I wonder about at the O'Connell household is what is the hair situation like? Like, uh, do they just sort of swap it around? Is it like a Mr. Potato Head thing, you know? Because Alex has had like three or four different looks this year already. Like, uh, I'm just wondering, is this like a family trait, you know, that goes on? Do they just swap around dues or like uh, what exactly happens? Maybe it's not really Alex O'Connell half the time. Maybe he's just swapping uh, brothers. Maybe he has brothers that we don't even know about. Maybe – I mean, that could be – I mean, Ky- Kyrie, I bet, would uh, – he, he would give some takes on some maybe O'Connell – O'Connell's from another planet. Well, uh, he just needs to be careful that he doesn't become the uh, second-rated uh, Australian at Duke. Uh, so Kyrie Kyrie has Jack White to worry about now, so. <laughs> very true. Very true. Has been so, good it, it very much has. Um, Trey Jones initiating more in half-court offense. I mean, I have ranted about this every year. I mean, it's kind of an ongoing thing, which I have to be careful with. I'm just not kind of going over the same crap of what Duke's point guards are designed to do in Coach K's offense, especially since the uh, the one-and-done era began, um, basically post-John uh, Shire. Um, I mean, R.J. Barrett is fantastic rj barrett i think at this point in his career is not really a big playmaker for others is still getting used to using screens to make plays for others in the most beneficial way in the most efficient way and trey it's it comes so naturally to him and so often i see k bring up the when they are actually running half court offense in the rare times K will bring up the, uh, whether it's Bolden or Javin to set a high screen for any one of RJ, Zion, or Cam, and he won't do that with Trey because Trey's in the corner, kind of where that typical Duke point guard is as a spot-up shooter. I mean, basically, that's what a Duke point guard has been for a long time, a spot-up shooter and the guy who's in charge of making plays in transition, the ball handler in transition, and then a spot-up shooter in half court. But when Duke has needed plays, the ball somehow somehow finds Trey Jones more often than not, and he just shows what he can do. And I just want to see more of it. I mean, he can score himself, but he can also create for others in ways that a guy like RJ or Cam, it doesn't come as naturally right now. I'm not saying it can't later on. Everyone's still learning, but 
let the point guard be a point guard is what I'm saying. And I said the same thing with DeVal. I said the same thing with Frank Jackson. I mean, guys, they, they didn't have the same skill set. And it becomes even more obvious when you see Trey because you look at Trey's stats. I mean, they're pretty bad, too. But everyone's stats are bad in half court because there's no offense being run. It's just the ball crosses half court. And it's just the first shot that anybody can see whether it makes any sense or not. It's just launched. There's ne- like I would love to see if there was like the NBA keeps track of stats of passes on each possession. I wish I could see how many passes Duke th- Duke throws in a half court possession. It can't be many. It's it seems to be more often than not just whoever gets the ball first shoots it. And I think Trey could be very beneficial to helping that out and even even throwing in a. Goldwire a little more. Jordan Goldwire, he's you know he's not going to just launch it as soon as he gets the ball. And I'm not saying he should get huge minutes, but the ball moves more when he's in there. So I just think this team, their skill sets, they have the ability. They're great passers. They're self they're selfless. And when people harp on R.J. Barrett taking a crazy ratio of shots compared to others, I think yes, R.J could set up guys more, but I think it's just as much a product of vanilla offense in the half court. So I think Coach K, I hope he changes it up a little and allows Trey to initiate more half court as you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, uh, we'll see. You know, with Mike Shosky, I think it's always a trust factor. You know, I think it's always a let your stars be stars uh, kind of mindset, and we've seen a lot of that this year with, with RJ, uh, and particularly give him the ball and go let him eat. Um, so, uh, you know, I think as the season progresses, hopefully uh, they'll uh, include Trey uh, in that mix more. You know, and when he's had point guards, they trust it. You know, last year, you know, with Grayson Allen, we can all, you know, talk about whether or not it was the right decision for him to play point guard. And I don't think either one of us thought it was. Um, but, you know, he had trust in him and he let him he let him take shots. He took it to the rack. You know, the last shot of last season was Grayson Allen, you know, drive into the bucket. Um, so it's been there and, you know, it, it might come with, uh, with, with Trey as well as this offense needs to diversify and develop. Um, but I, and I think it needs to, um, you just, you have to have different ways of attacking, even if, uh, you know, RJ Barrett were uh prime Kobe Bryant, um, out there teams can game plan, take away your number one option, no matter how good you are, they can game plan. They might be able to take away two options. You have to have that other way to attack. You know, you need three guys to get you a bucket. You need three different ways to be able to go about getting a bucket. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see more of that. And hopefully they will run more ball screens because, you know, his older brother, Tyus, was as good with the ball screen. He was like, um, I don't know, man, it was instinctive or something. He was he was Fred Astaire with ball screens or, or something like that. It just it was just so natural. You know, he had. He had so that's a very that's a very modern. That's uh, uh, what I do right here, uh, really. Uh, but it was just instinctual, you know, it was really something to watch how, how he just understood how it would go, um, you know, and maybe Trey will have a little, we haven't seen it yet, but, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, give him a couple and uh, and we'll see it. But but certainly in terms of creating diversity for the offense, being able to attack there, there's nothing in basketball that substitutes for being able to win one on one. And when your point guard can do it, you know, it's the most valuable of all. Yeah, and with RJ, it's almost how Grayson was used because Grayson wasn't the best at setting up his teammates either. So a lot of these high screens were basically just slipped. So it creates action, but it doesn't actually create pick-and-roll opportunities. With Trey, whether the screens are slipped or whether they actually stick with it so Trey can use it with pick-and-roll, I think just 
the fact that the action is created with Trey and there's multiple opportunities of what he can do, the triple threat, I think it's just, I don't see how you wouldn't at least try to give that more of a chance. I mean, you keep saying diversify, so it, it, and I can't stop thinking of the Chappelle show Wu-Tang skit. Where, uh, yeah. The Wu-Tang, Wu- yeah, yeah, diversify your bonds. Yeah, naturally, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so absolutely, I would like to see that. Um, and especially with, I mean, teams, as I said, are overplaying RJ and Zion more and more to their, to their left, their shooting hands. So I think it's put more pressure on them. And we've seen Zion kind of, obviously, as you kind of hinted at, he was called for a charge, which was absurd against Texas Tech, but he's been called for other charges, which weren't absurd just because guys are starting to anticipate what he's doing the same way. Any team is basically having a game plan on the team they're playing. The more possessions you can see on video, on tape, the more you'll be able to recognize someone's tendencies. And that's actually an interesting thing about Zion because, I mean, Zion is the most talked about player on Duke. We've barely mentioned him. Let's start. I mean, defense is where I want to talk about him the most. But I will say on offense, his – I think he's been – fantastic in the way he doesn't force anything you can look at all his stats and say oh look he can he can do everything except spot up i mean he made his first um three-pointer that's actually his first attempt of the season was against kentucky and uh he made it since then he's like two for 17 and these shots are not close it's very flat uh you just don't want him taking deep shots now and whatever you want him to be able to show for the future it's about winning now so And he makes winning plays. He doesn't force anything. And that's really impressive for a guy who's being watched by so many scouts, so many fans at all times. You would think he would start to force things. It would be inevitable. He doesn't. He takes what the defense gives him. When you see these stats where he's great in isolation, you think, oh, he can just take guys off the dribble. He does it when he when he has when he has a smaller defender or a slower defender on him, and it's been switched that way then he'll take advantage. He's such a smart player, but you can't just look at ISO stats and say, he can just take anyone off the dribble. He can do anything. He cannot take guys at least consistently at this point. I'm not saying he won't be able to in time. I absolutely do. I mean, he's, his ceiling is unlimited. But right now, I, he can. He, you say it's so important to have guys that can just get a bucket. I think the more you can help him out with screens – it will help out the entire team. It'll make everyone's shot attempts more efficient, including his. And especially once you see more zone. I mean, you could use him in the short roll, which teams are doing more in the NBA. There's just so many ways to use him. But I think a remarkable aspect to his game is how much he's taking what the defense gives him. He's not forcing anything. And he's such a selfless player um, on offense, and that's before we even get to his defense. Yeah, he's been uh, he, he's been a phenomenal player, and he's been a really committed player. You know, there, you know, when you watched him in in high school, and I only did a little bit of this because, you know, who has time to watch high school basketball games? But like actual high school games, not AAU games. He kind of wondered. You're you're too busy bit, going roller you know, skating. Uh, that and hanging out with uh with with uh, Mike and uh, Mickey. Um, but, uh, you wondered a little bit that, and he's been great. I mean, he dives at the loose balls. He's, he's just been phenomenal. He plays every possession a hundred percent. So it's been great. 
Um, but he actually probably does need to be a little more selfish. He needs to take, you know, more shots. You know, maybe it's posting up, just getting in the lane. Uh, just he, he needs more shots. You know, he is uh, second on the team uh, in uh, in shots taken this year, but he's 92 behind uh, R.J. Barrett, I think. Um, you know, his shot percentage, uh, what I'm looking at in front of me, R.J. Barrett's at 36.8. Zion Limbs at 26.4. You know, 36.8 is, is too high for any any one player. Um, you know, on a, in a, in a team, uh, on a team like Duke. Um, so Zion's going to have to, they need to figure out a way to, to get him more buckets. Maybe he actually needs to be a little more selfish there. You know, he's been very good in the opportunities that he's, that he's taken. And, and he, you know, I'd love to see a shot chart, you know, just around the paint, you know, what does it look like? The little jumper in the paint. You're right. His three point shot is gross. It should not happen. You know, it is, it is contraindicated. Uh, you know, it is, it is, it is probably outlawed in a few States. It is, it is really unpleasant stuff. Um, but, uh, but you know, you can score in the, when you, when you get in the paint, it's not so much about the, you're just putting it up with the rim, you know, and the great thing about Zion shooting in the paint is that if it misses, you have your best offensive rebounder right there, you know, in Zion Williamson. So, you know, I think they just need to, 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 you know, find a way to get him more shots, uh, you know, in the, in the half court it needs to be a little bit, a little bit more selfish. Frankly. It's kind of funny. You look at synergy, um, his jump shot range, Short, short is uh, 17 and closer, 17 uh, feet and closer uh, inches, um, feet. Uh, it's, he's one for one. Medium, 17 to the three-point line. He's one for two. And then all others, he's two for 16. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he's not even attempting it, which is smart. But at the same time, I was kind of leading into that, kind of hoping you would say he would be more selfish because he should be. I mean, this is a guy who he's a great passer and whatever the stats show other guys are shooting off it. I'm not really concerned about because I know he's passing well, hitting guys right in the shooting pocket. And there's no way he should have more assists in transition than he has in half court because honestly, I don't ever want him passing in transition unless absolutely necessary. The guy is... I mean, he is a transition machine, and it seems like he, as soon as he crosses half court, he can just dunk. So, yeah, I mean, transition, I want him to be finishing. And he shouldn't have more assists. I mean, in transition than half court, it just goes to show, I think he, if he gets more touches, then he'll have more assists. It's just he's not getting enough touches. It's not even the shot attempts that I'm looking at closely, though I would like to see more of those as well. It's about how many touches he's getting and how it can lead to better opportunities for him and others. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, uh, in, in transition, you know, he's a very good outlet passer, too. So a lot of them might be, be coming there. The other thing he's got to be careful of in transition, it's like, you know, as, as bad as that call was in the Texas Tech game, uh, you know, that uh, he had the spin move in transition and the defender was shuffling his feet and fell down. Um, that's going to happen a lot because it's easy to see that's the wrong call from the camera angle that we're looking at. But this guy is going to lead the league in anticipated charge calls from officials. It's just going to happen, um, you know. So he's got to be he's got to be mindful of that. And teams are going to game plan him, and they're going to be in the right. That's one thing about Texas Tech, you know, is as dubious as a lot of those calls were. Um, it's a team that's clearly coached to do that. And there are going to be other teams that are coached to do that, you know, to anticipate where guys are going to be. And he's probably going to be the biggest victim of that because you just don't expect a guy to move like that, to be so agile. So you start calling that, you start blowing the whistle and he spins around and you've already blown the whistle. And what are you going to do? You know? So, um, you know, he's got to be a little, little careful of that, but, uh, 
um, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, he, he needs to find find more shots, demand the ball a little bit more, and uh, you know, put the team on his back from time to time because he's so good when he when he when he gets the ball in his hands. Okay, so RJ is doing a lot of ball handling when he handles it. Kind of the the I would say in half court, everything stops a little too much. I would like to see other guys get involved, and one guy I would like to see more involved but play smarter at the same time is Cam Reddish. Cam Reddish was always going to be an interesting topic as the third guy of the three superstars that uh, Duke recruited, if anybody is not considering Trey Jones a superstar. I mean, honestly, once they get to Duke, I consider it all the same. So it is what it is at this point. I don't care what the recruiting ranking was, but... One thing I heard constantly from Cam is how he understands how people view him and how people watched him in high school. And it was interesting just how seemingly self-aware he was. And I'm not going to say self-aware to a point of negativity, um, being too self-aware. I'm just saying he knows what people thought of how sometimes he would turn it on in high school. Sometimes he would just kind of be there, not really doing anything. And he wants to show everyone he can consistently come out and give 100%. And he's done that at Duke. But I think at some points, it seems like he's pressing. He's come, He's playing so incredibly hard. And, I, and I'm not trying to say that Zion isn't playing hard, because, I mean, Zion plays amazingly hard, or that anybody else, that Trey isn't playing hard. Um, Buckmeyer never plays hard. But, uh, I mean, just in terms of Reddish, it seems like he's not really kind of playing within himself. He has so much talent, but he gets the ball, and he just he just darts to the hole or just chucks it up as soon as he gets it. I mean, even on defense, which people many questioned, including me, because when I saw his defense in high school, a lot of it was in the very basic two, three, and he just, the team really wasn't doing much. He wasn't expected, uh, much wasn't expected out of what they did on uh, zone in zone. They could kind of take some plays off and he's been fantastic on ball. He had, he struggled a bit early in the season off ball. He would kind of leave his man too much and then have to recover. And he was late gotten much better his foul rate is pretty bad getting worse um but i think i'd rather see a guy play too hard and learn how to tone it down a little bit be a little bit less aggressive there than to play harder on offense i think that's where it's just he's got to be able to understand his role and watching him play i'm not sure what his role is everyone knows duke doesn't have much shooting from the outside at all, not much perimeter shooting. And in this day and age where it seems like everyone on every team is supposed to be able to shoot, everyone can spread. Cam was going to be that guy who could do it. Uh, what was it versus, um, I can't remember which team, but uh, it might have been Army where he had like seven threes and it was a freshman record. He's shown in spurts he can do it. But against Gonzaga, where Kay sat him from eight and a half left until 30 seconds left, I think since then, it's been kind of up and down when he gets playing time. And I just think his role is a question, and whatever it takes for everyone else to help him understand what his role is, I think will be big moving forward, because I called him Duke's X-Factor coming into the season. I still believe that. So what is your opinion of uh, Cam's role and what 
and how he should be playing. What have you seen with his skill set so far at Duke? Uh, you know, I mean, I think you're you're mostly uh, on the nose there, which is just it's a matter of finding a role for him and really understanding what that is. You know, that's that's one challenge. And the second challenge is about, you know, focusing that energy. It needs to be sort of what we talked about with Javin Deloria. It needs to be disciplined energy, you know, not chaotic energy. And, and, and sometimes it's a little bit too much on on the other side. But what we've seen is, you know, a very good uh, defender and a you know, good help defender, really disruptive defender. He has created more turnovers on inbounds passes through 12 games than anyone, you know, I can think of uh, at Duke. It's almost like a, a specialty of his. And the guy that we're worried so much about defense is actually leading the team in steals. He's at 26 steals right now, which, again, you know, early in the season and, 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 and sample size and all. But, you know, the Duke freshman record for steals is 81 by Jason Williams, his freshman here. So he's on pace to top that. So that gives you an idea of where he's at, um, you know, and, and, you know, he and Trey and uh, and, um, uh, you know, Zion have all been very good at that. So, um, you know, we've seen him be better defensively than I thought he would be. Um, there's nothing broken about his shot, per se. So uh, even with the slumps, he's shooting 35.6 percent from three, which isn't great, but, you know, it's it's at least acceptable. Um, and there's nothing in his mechanics or anything that particularly seems broken. So that will probably uh, go up. But, you know, I think it just gets back to the point you were making, which is what is his role in this team? Finding the role that he can be comfortable in. And he's never going to be a guy, you know, that's going to be, you know, slapping everybody on the chest and, and jumping around. Like, I don't think that's his personality. You know, and a lot of times fans will just jump on players like this. It's just like, you know, Marquise Bolden. People who aren't sort of out rah-rahing and, and, and doing cartwheels you know, that don't show this emotion. People think that they're disinterested or whatever. I don't think that's the case. Um, I don't think it's worth getting in someone's head as to whether or not they're interested and invested by, by you know, what you see on the court. But, you know, I think that's just sort of the the, 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 the challenge for him as much of a soft narrative it is, is just defining that role, becoming comfortable in that role. And I, I still have pretty good confidence that it's going to click with him, you know, and we'll get back to the point where you have three reliable um, you know, scores among those big three, you know, with, with, uh, with, uh, Trey, you know, thrown in as well, um, for the fourth. But, um, you know, I think it's just a matter of role. Like, where does it, where does he fit? You know, right now you're a guy, um, that's watching two, uh, you know, stars in, in Zion and, uh, RJ who, you know, let the game, you know, Zion in particular lets the game come to him. He, he scores almost naturally. You know, I always say he leads the league in making it look easy, you know. Um, RJ, you know, just has this exceptional talent to, to be able to get to the rim. Um, you know, so, so where does that leave Cam? You know, if you're not running off specifically for him, like what exactly is he doing? And it's sporadic. It's almost like, you know, the pinch hitter that doesn't get regular at bats. It's hard to be great when you're not getting regular at bats. So I think it's going to come, you know, I think the skill set is there. Um, I think most of the things that we've seen, you know, the, the fact that he goes right to the rim or he dribbles the ball off his foot or some of the things that we've seen, I don't think that's a function of skill set. I think that's just a function of, you know, uh, again, getting that energy into to discipline energy and to, um, you know, finding a place in the team. So, you know, look, a little bit of a soft narrative. We usually talk stats, but I, I think that's mostly um, what's going on with Cam. And I, I think by the end of the year, it'll pick up and they're going to need him to because they need the outside shooting and they need the free throw shooting. I think he's going to be the best free throw shooter. And that to me, when you watch him, you know, struggling at the line recently is, uh, is as much a reflection of what's going on in head as anything, because that's, you know, that's not physical at the free throw line. The stroke is fine. Um, so, you know, I, I think they'll figure it out. I think he's shown enough skills that, that you're not worried about him not being as good as his ranking. You're just worried about, you know, 
will they figure out how to use that talent? Yeah, and uh, I, I think especially in the last couple of years with with more and more one and dones or th- that type of uh, player who might be a little more prone to making young player mistakes. I think Coach K really emphasizes guys who just they're not going to give the other team free possessions. I think that's why Duval, as many good play, as many good plays as he made, it never re, he never was really fully trusted by K because he would just give the other team some easy chances with kind of what are you thinking type of turnovers. And Cam's turnover rate, I mean, it started out really well, but then against Gonzaga, I mean, in that Gonzaga game. He actually, I think he hit like two straight threes, but then he committed three fouls and he turned the ball over like three times. This was all within like a four minute span, which is just like, it's so extreme high and low that obviously was situationally dependent, just like every decision, it can be situationally dependent within each game. But that might have been why K chose to go with a uh, Jack White, Javin Delorier lineup down the stretch, which just you know what you're going to get instead of worrying about the extremes. But I think it's good that he's kind of stuck with Cam and against Texas Tech. I mean, you saw two plays, which who who knows? Like, it, we just haven't seen it that much in terms of RJ getting a high screen from, I believe it was Javin, and and Javin sticking with it, not just slipping the screen, actually allowing RJ to use the screen for pick and roll. And it go, it's on RJ just as much where he hasn't used screens as well as possible. He did it perfectly here. Pass to uh, uh, Cam in the corner. Perfect pass. Huge three. As big as any shot in the game. That provided Duke the win as much as any other play, any other single play possibly could have. It was just so huge to see both of those things happen in such a clutch uh, late game versus a high-quality opponent. So that's something to kind of hang your hat on moving forward of let's show this on film. Let's show these guys be able to do things that we haven't seen much of and try to repeat it as much as possible because the skill set is there. Yeah, uh, you know, and that certainly was a big was a big play, and that gets back to you talk about what does R.J. Barrett need to do in in the offense. You know, that was such a uh, a smart um, heady play, you know, uh, to make where you know, and then to have the trust in Cam just standing there. But you know, the defense sucked in, and and he's wide he's wide open, and again, that gets back to three point shooting. It's gonna it's gonna come for this team if they can create some space and get the right guys taking the shots. So. Um, you know that was a that was a that was a great play that helped them, you know, win the Texas Tech game and really sort of hopefully starts providing the the blueprint because we've seen some of these things happen. The little sparks have been there, but they haven't consistently put it together in the half court. But that's what you're going to have if you have a guy driving and then somebody hunting on the three point line, or you have a guy cutting. There's a lot of different things they're going to be able to do with a team of athletic slashing wings like this. So you know that's a good that was a good example of of, of what they can do. Um, you know, if they really get the half court going. Yeah, and I've talked about preseason playing for the ceiling, not just playing to be safe, which I thought Duke did a little too much last year um, with not letting DeVal run point guard, um, not playing to their ceiling too often um, with the lineup choices. And I actually said, like, Jack White, if you play him at the four, possibly the five, and let Zion roam, I think that could be great. And I, I included Cam in there. Right now, 
I would say, would Coach K, just as it is right now, and it's all situational, I understand decisions are situational, but right now, is Coach K thinking that more often than not, the best lineup down the stretch, the most trusted lineup down the stretch is going to be Trey, RJ, Zion, Jack White, and then kind of whatever fits best between Cam, Javin, and Bolden? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. That that seems like a, a sensical um, approach. You know, the challenge that you have, um, the reason you really need Cam to step up and be that late game guy is he, he can get you the bucket. You know, he can shoot from three. So you have a lot of different situations in which he's going to be useful, whereas, you know, you get a certain skill set out of Bolden. You're getting rim protection really is what you're getting out of Bolden. So if you need that, great. But Cam, you know, he's disruptive. Um, you know, in your press, we've seen that several times. He turned guys over in that one, two, two, three quarter uh, several times. Uh, he can hit the three and he can hit the free throw. So if you're up by a point or two and it's going to turn into a free throw shooting contest, you know, if you can get Cam going, then you have a guy you really feel confident in. Because other than that, who do you have? You know, Trey, unlike his older brother, has not yet shown that, you know, free throw shooting uh, ability. Um, Zion is OK, but like I that shot is still a little flat. You know, if, if you have a national championship riding on it, you probably not who you want there. You know, RJ hasn't been great from the free throw line. Jack White's been pretty good. Um, but, uh, and he's been a pretty good free throw shooter at Duke. So you certainly have that, but it's just nice to have that guy who can have the ball in his hands, can put it on the deck. So this is where you need to get, you need to get Cam going. But yeah, I think that, that matchup is that lineup, you know, with, with the situational piece that fits us is what's going to work because, uh, you know, Mike Chessie clearly has a, a tremendous amount of trust, um, in Jack White and, uh, he's been really, uh, strong down the game, uh, down the stretch, uh, lately. Um, for Duke, uh, you know, he fights for every rebound. I always talk about, you know, he never he never grabs an uncontested rebound, it seems. You know, there's always someone around him. He's always fighting it off. And I think that wears guys down, you know. So you have a guy that, you know, maybe doesn't play as many minutes in the first half. You bring him in late in the game and, uh, you know, you have a set of fresh legs that just is willing to do nothing but scrap. He doesn't have to go out and put the ball on the deck and get a shot. He can just scrap on defense and, um, you know, set up around the three-point line on offense. So, um, yeah. You're talking, you're talking about Jack White, the new and improved version of David McClure. I don't want to hear anything in comparison to their height, weight, or skill set. He is the new, improved version of David Definitely McClure. Improved. But, That's, uh, uh, <laughs> that I don't want to hear your rebuttal. It, it means nothing to me. Um, but, yeah, Jack White, I mean, he's so everything glue guy that we talk about with glue guys. And, I mean, he's so determined to just do what's necessary and give the ball to the shot makers that he got what should have been the game winning game winning rebound and putback versus Gonzaga and instead just got the rebound and and was looking for other teammates who were just waiting for him to put the ball right back up when he, nobody was around him and instead he overshot it by like five feet when he was one foot away which is because so he's all he wants to do is just, or not wants to do, but he's his, it's his way of thinking. Just play my role, get let other guys get get the credit, and he's been fantastic, fantastic in every way. I worry if it becomes a play to the uh, floor instead of play to the ceiling. I want him there as much as possible, but I'm just not sure if I want him there instead of Cam Reddish when the time comes, unless he is playing um, the four or five or something down low. Because what he does 
he's really tough in there and he will he will bang with anyone and that allows Zion to roam and when Zion roams on defense he makes as much of an impact as anybody I've really ever seen at Duke he like since Justice Winslow but he's much more I mean he's just a monster I mean he makes those LeBron come from behind dunks I mean that's more in transition but uh just in terms of affecting anything, everything, and what I was worried about watching Zion in high school is how he would take too big of a risk and leave his man, and his man would be wide open. His recovery has gotten much better. He's not just a highlight mixtape guy, and even on defense, he's really in tune with what's going on. He will make, he will do the dirty work. He'll do all the hustle plays, and he's affecting everything. As much as anyone. So, I mean, while you have Trey uh, providing great on-ball defense, you have Zion. I mean, you have a guy who's 6'7", and guys are like, I think he's 6 or maybe 6'8". Um, guys are really afraid to really test him at the rim in the same way guys were afraid to test Wendell Carter at the rim. And it's just remarkable. I mean, you have Zion getting offensive rebounds on the other end. He just has an instinct for, the, for, for where the ball is going to go. He, he's just, it's really impressive to watch. Right now, I mean, it's almost, I don't want to say a debate because both are so valuable. Would you say, which who is providing the bigger impact to Duke's half-court defense right now, Trey or Zion? Both yeah, are fantastic. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, it's two different skill sets, and they've both been, uh, they've both been really good. I mean, I tend to think it, it's it's better to have a premium defender at the point guard position than... Um, at the three or the four where you see Zion, uh, there's just more guys who can fill that role and can come with the help side block and things like that. Um, so I would probably lean towards Trey, but they've both been phenomenal. I mean, it's just really impressive uh, how good and how committed Zion has been. I mean, he doesn't have to be. You know, guys are going to understand you got to get your, your shots. You know, you're, you're an offensive star. You know, if you you know, I don't think NBA scouts are, would ding him so badly, you know, if he's focusing on that part of his game because he's so good at it. But, you know, he's been engaged. He's been, you know, on the floor more than, uh, you know, maybe as much as Jack White, probably as much as any player on this on this Duke team. You know, he's been. And from the first second, I mean, at, in Canada, I remember after the last game in Canada, Jay Billis was interviewing him. He said, what what is your biggest takeaway from uh, Duke's games in Canada? And Zion, all he said was, Talking on defense. When we talk on defense, we can be as good as anyone. If we don't talk on defense, then we struggle. And to me, that that was huge. And it's not just cliches you constantly hear. I mean, I think that he was absolutely right, and he's committed. And I, I think I, I'm really interested to uh, talk to someone. Like, I'm going to have Sean Crest on once the uh, ACC season gets started because I want – I think Trey is talking a lot on defense. It's tough to tell. Um, from just watching on TV. I want to hear who is the big talker because I think this team was really committed and it's just more naturally outgoing as well with Zion. I'm not sure RJ so much um, verbally, although I don't want to assume anything. I mean, I don't know. Um, but it seems like Zion is a big talker and Trey, I think the way Coach K talks about how he gets guys lined up on both sides of the ball and gets guys in position. I feel like he has to be, even if, I, again, this is just a guess. This is not based on any stat or anything. It's just, it seems like he's in control out there, which is more than just on-ball defense. It's 
everything works in tune. Everything is symbiotic. So if everyone's communicating together and working together, and Javin Delorier, he's he's calling out screens, and Coach K is making better decisions than against Gonzaga, where he had Bolden out there too long um, against the, the outside shooters, the big outside shooters. If you have guys that are better matchups, and you have everyone talking and communicating and moving cohesively together, I think this, the defense is just so much better. But again, it's so dangerous to take too much out of, as I said, three games where they were really tested the whole the whole game. So I am interested with better point guards because when they played against the more experienced, better point guards, Jared Harper, Perkins for Gonzaga, it didn't look as as great. I do think they're improving, but I'm very excited to see how this defense not just uh, forces turnovers, but actually works in the half court against ACC quality competition in a, on a consistent level. Yeah, well, we'll uh, get to find out soon enough. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, talking is always very important uh, on these Duke teams. There was a ESPN the magazine cover story about it a few years ago about. Uh, you know, how the team communicates and they always use, you know, one syllable names and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's 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 important, you know, as much as Duke switches, you need to know uh, what's going on. And then the other guy that I wouldn't discount from, you know, who talks the most uh, out there when he's in is uh, Jack White. You know, just watching on television, it seems like he's, you know, grabbing guys and moving people around. And, you know, he's been there for three years, so he certainly understands exactly, um, you know, what's expected of the of the defense. but. Um, you know, it's 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 incredibly important when you have to defend that long with that many switches with everybody switching. You have to be talking constantly um, or else you're going to have those breakdowns. And that's the thing about the way Duke plays man to man. When you have a breakdown, it's not, oh, was there a breakdown there? It is a massive collapse. You know, it's that, you know, ball you who's man, uh, you know, thing that, uh, you know, that that you see so often. And it's just this glaring opportunity that opens up. So. You know, um, it's something they're going to have to continue doing. But uh, again, I, you know, I, as good as this team is defensively right now and as good as they are at rotations, you just don't have so many of those gaps. Um, it's really surprising for a team this young. Yeah, and they're not turning the ball over much on offense, which uh, helps with uh, not suffering so much in transition defense, which has been a problem in the past, especially with how much a guy like Trey, he's really helping to uh, – kind of team rebound uh, kind of gang rebound and you would think that could negatively affect transition defense at times it hasn't so that's nice to see um all right so the really the last kind of i I would say analytical uh topic duke's their last seven losses going back to last year including gonzaga and then duke's last six losses last year um they've all been by five points or less and they've recorded one win by five points or less. And it can be dangerous if you, there's a bunch of games surrounding it where, like, they went, they won by, like, six or seven, and you're ignoring those just because you want to really focus on one stat, which you're obsessed with. But no, I mean, they're really, they, there hasn't been a lot of that. It's just the close games, they've been coming up short. So... What would you think will be the key to winning close games? We saw in Gonzaga where they had been running better team-oriented offense, and then RJ kind of isoed down the stretch, and that didn't work out too well. So they have the guys who can get buckets, or we're hoping they do. How do you think it goes? What do you think is the key for them pulling out close uh, close victories? 
Well, for this team, it's going to be free throw shooting. I mean, uh, that's a lot of what it comes down to. You go back to the Gonzaga game, yeah, you know, Duke lost that game, but they had every opportunity to win it. And why do they have every opportunity to win it? Because Hachimura, Gonzaga couldn't shoot free throws. You know, they missed they missed six free throws in the last minute or something like that. You know, not looking at the play-by-play, but, you know, they missed a bunch of free throws at the end that they had a chance to ice it. And that's how you win games in college basketball. You, one, don't turn the ball over, and two, you hit your free throws, you know, going down the stretch. Um, you know, if you're if you're winning and you're holding on to a lead late, um, you know, if you're trying to get back into it, you know, obviously you have to uh, be able to get some open threes. You need to make the team to make the defense move and get some some looks at the basket. So, um, you know, I don't put a ton of stock into the, you know, the, the record and five points or less. That sounds like a random variance kind of thing with, with that small sample size. And, you know, who, who knows exactly how you got there. And, you know, there's not necessarily significance to five, but. Um, you know, for this team, it is going to be significant, which is they still haven't they still haven't consistently proven that they can hit free throws. And when you talk about a close game, that's that's what it comes down to. Um, if you're protecting a lead, you absolutely have to be able um, to hit three pointers. Then you have to be smart with the ball. And I think that part they'll actually be fine with. Um, you know, they take care of the ball very well. Um, Trey does not get in foul trouble, so you don't have to worry too much about him not being in the game. Um, but you know, those are the two. The two key, the two key things, you know, and then if there's a third piece, it's playing defense and limiting the team to one shot because that's if you're trailing and you're playing defense and you cannot get the ball back. You know, we saw this last year in the North Carolina loss um, where Duke just could not get the ball back. They couldn't rebound. Um, so you got to be able to keep them one and done. So, you know, again, I think that'll work out fairly well for this team because, you know, Jack White is such a tenacious rebounder. Uh, uh, Zion is such a freakish rebounder. And then however, you know, the rest of the team comes in and gang rebounds, you know, to your point. But, you know, those are the things with winning close games. Um, so, uh, you know, some of them we've seen and then and the free throw shooting we're still a little angsty about. All right. So Tyus Jones was uh, obviously he was he was nicknamed Stones. I've nicknamed I've nicknamed Trey Pebbles. Will that catch on? And should he hate me? For giving him that nickname, I would say yes. I would, yeah. I mean, I hope it doesn't catch on, but, uh, you know, crazier things have happened. Um, I guess you could have a backcourt. You could nickname RJ Bam Bam if he's Pebbles, right? So, um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, there's different things he does. There's, I mean, there's some things he does better than Tyus. Uh, so, you know, I don't think anyone wants to be uh, characterized exclusively as, uh, as the little brother uh, in any relationship. All right, so uh, in the season preview pod, we had our first segment of Back in Ray's Day, where Ray is old and decrepit. He'll tell you about some good stuff that happened during his uh, during his days at Duke, and let's see what he has for us today as we enter the new year. I am youthful and amazing, sir. However, let's talk about a time when uh, Duke Star was not quite so uh, amazing, or at least was incapacitated. So... Uh, the first game of the season uh, this year in the conference for Duke is uh, Clemson. So 20 years ago, uh, Duke played Clemson at home and uh, it gave rise to one of the more famous moments in Cameron and what is probably the most famous uh, run in uh, Cameron history. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, 1999. So there are times when Cameron has absolutely lost his damn mind. When I was there as a student, uh, the 17-point comeback against UNC in 1997 leads the list. Uh, Elton Brand's return from a broken bone in his foot is probably number two his freshman year. There were others. 
Uh, it happened quite frequently. But there was only one time when Cameron raged. That was February 20th, 1999 against Duke's next opponent, Clemson. The 1999 team is still uh, talked about in Duke annals. It was uh, really a team unlike any other. It was it was mechanized warfare in the age of horse. It was a tank brigade against a cavalry target. It, just, it seemed like they were playing on a different level. They played the game better. They played the game faster. They played the game tougher than anyone else. And they were talented. There were two national players of the year on that roster. Elton Brand would win then at the end of the 1999 season. Shane Battier won it in 2001. Three, uh, there were three ACC players of the year. Chris Carwell would win it in 2000. Uh, there was another All-American at Trajan Langdon. There was another All-ACC player in Will Avery. And then there was Corey Maggette, who would be Duke's first one-and-done. And, you know, still remains the measuring stick for all things freak athlete at Duke. The team would be the first to put four players into the first round of the NBA draft in the same year. It did so within the top 14 picks. So February 28th was senior night. It was the last home game of the career for Trajan Langdon. Uh, Langdon was the unquestioned leader of one of these great of the great Duke team. Uh, but he, of course, wasn't supposed to be there. Uh, Trajan was a two-sports two star. He played minor league baseball. Um, he was a top recruit that came to Duke uh, for the 1995 season, which was, of course, the nadir of the uh, modern era of Duke basketball. They won just two games in the ACC. But he came in with that freshman class with Steve Wojciechowski. Um, but he would miss all the next year. He had a knee injury. He missed 14 months, so he wound up a year behind everybody else. So instead of 1998 being his senior night, which was with Steve Wojciechowski and that great comeback against North Carolina, it was uh, 1999 against Clemson. In the next years, he was a great player for Duke. In 97, he hit the three-pointer that snapped UNC stranglehold on that rivalry. You know, the Chronicle, the Duke Chronicle, the student newspaper ran giant headline, all, all hail Trajan. It was a great moment in Duke basketball. Um, he led that mismatched Duke team we talked about earlier to a share of the ACC regular season title. And again, this was an ACC that was a man's ACC. It was Vince Carter, Antoine Jamison, Tim Duncan. They were just stars left and right. Can I just ask real quick, how, do, how does, like, in that time, without all the video and everything, a guy in Alaska, was he playing high school ball in the U.S. much? Like, unless you actually watch him, like, at the Great Alaska Shootout when that still happened, how do you know about a guy like that? Well, I mean, it wasn't that far distant. Yeah, I mean, um, it's not like 1920. And they played AAU, and he was from uh, he was from Anchorage. So he, you know, Anchorage. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm gonna butcher geography of of um, of Alaska, but I think Anchorage is all the way down. So it's basically you know on the edge of British Columbia. So it's not quite as remote as uh, okay. Nome or Fairbanks or something. In fact, his high school lab partner was uh, Jewel, who you may remember from the 90s. How on earth do you know that? Pop singer, because it was a big thing at the time, and you know, oh just, there weren't a lot of famous Alaskans. In fact, you would know where Trajan was around campus because he had a car that had an Alaska plate on it, and it was the only car um, that, uh, that that did so, at least until, uh, you know, I guess Trajan was gone, but then Carlos Boozer came and continued the legacy, and then, you know, um, I think Duke, Duke finally struck out an Alaska guy. I think it was Mario Chalmers was Alaskan, right? And Duke, Duke wasn't able to win um, you know, did, did, did Trajan play uh, foolish games with Jewel? Never mind, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, where were we? 1998. So, um, you know, so, so Trajan, 1998, he led, you know, Duke's redeem team all the way to the Elite Eight. So that was a great team in 98. They always get overlooked because 99 was so good. Man, 98 was a really good team. And you talk about depth in Duke teams, that was a team that had depth up and down the lineup. Um, so Trajan was, you know, uh, again, leader on that team. Um, 1999 comes along. 
you know, everyone looks to Trajan. He is a uh, captain uh, of what is, you know, arguably Duke's Duke's best team ever, certainly on the short list. Um, you know, on the way, he set the Duke, Duke school record for three-pointers. He became one of just six Blue Devils to be first-team all-conference three consecutive years. Uh, and so by the end of February, his career was coming to a close. Um, that Duke team was becoming mythic in its own time. Uh, one of the great superpowers of that team was its ability to put on runs. The last four minutes before the half, you know, became something out of a video game. It was like it was like bonus strength was awarded. You know, it was it was Popeye eating his spinach. There was something about that team that as they closed in on the end of the first half, they just ran away with games. Uh, and the other corner of that day, they were playing Clemson. So, you know, Clemson, you don't think about them necessarily as a great basketball power. But by that point, Rick Barnes was there. Um, the program was was generally doing fairly well. They'd been ranked the previous year. Um, they kind of always gave Duke uh, fits. Um, you know, coming into that game, they were only 4-9 and nine in the ACC, but they'd really been a problem for Duke. You know, a year earlier, the 24th-ranked Clemson had two shots to beat Duke in uh, the end of that game, but they couldn't connect on either one. And that was an interesting end of the game because Duke had the chance to hit the last shot. They missed it. Um, it went back the other way, and Steve Wojciechowski uh, gets a tie-up, right? And uh, everybody's flipping out in camera. All Duke has to do is inbound the ball and shoot free throws. Well, they can't do that. Shane Battier hands it to... You know, Steve Wojciechowski, two guys who barely ever committed a turnover in their due careers, and they turned the ball over. Wojciechowski just dropped it right on his foot, went out of bounds. Uh, so Clemson got two shots at it. It was a Sunday afternoon game. Brent Musburger was there, ABC Sports, big deal. Um, and uh, anyway, Terrell McIntyre shot from the free throw line, clanged off, and then uh, Clemson had a second chance to win it, and then they, they missed a shot. So 1999, Duke was uh, in the midst of a 35-game home winning streak at that point. Only two teams during that stretch, North Carolina and Clemson, had come within seven points of Duke. That's how badly they were blowing teams out. This is the same, the 98 team, as the team that beat you know UCLA by nearly 40, a top 10 ranked UCLA in Cameron the previous year. But Clemson had hung, hung with them twice. Um, and then the 81-80 final was the closest anyone had come. So Clemson came into that game with a lot of swagger. You know, again, they were just 4-9 in the ACC, but they won their last two games by 56 points. So it wasn't exactly going to be a walkover. Um, and they did have talent on that roster. Uh, senior point guard Terrell McIntyre was a three-time All-ACC player himself, really one of the great ACC points of the 90s. You know, Harold Jamison was about as tough and physical a player as the ACC would ever see. Um, they had a freshman on that team named Will Solomon, who would go on to be Clemson's first team, uh, first All-ACC first team uh, selection in more than a decade, and was a great player down there for uh, Larry Shiad as he as he as he drove that that team south, unfortunately. Uh, so they came up with a pretty good game plan, you know, or at least a uh, you know an effective one. They, they decided they couldn't out talent Duke, so they were going to out talk. Well, as it turned out, they couldn't do that either, and they picked the wrong guy to try and get tough with. So at that game with about 7:30 to go in the first half, uh, the strategy of out physically Duke was working fairly well. Uh, you know, Jamison was smack talking with the crazies as he walked back up and down. Uh, the game was tied at 30. Uh, one play later, it all changed. So Langdon uh, was playing very strong defense. You know, he was running around as he always did. He was uh, chasing around a guy named Adrius Dracunas. It was another one of these guys in that class with uh, McIntyre and Jamison who had helped, you know, redefine Clemson basketball. Um, he was going around. He caught an elbow from Adam Allen's box um, on a screen and just knocked him flat on his back. So Clemson was able to play five on four for a minute. Uh, Will Solomon hit a jumper. They went up 32-30. They stopped the game. Langdon is just lying there on the floor. 
He sits up and like blood is just all over his hand. It's gushing at his face. He's lying down. So I can't actually find film footage footage of this. So I'm sort of relying on on being in the stands and remembering you know what I can. He's like, he's like an Alaskan uh, Tyler Hansbrough. Uh, yeah. Except uh, <laughs> you know, he wasn't also looking for a contact at the same time. He was always the master of losing my contact at all times. So um, he's lying there. He's a blood just pouring out and uh and he and he and he sits up and like the team just gets incensed so you know uh 7:25 to go so there was no foul called on that by the way the play just went on um but they stopped the you know rick hartzell was the referee that day um the head official he uh stops the game you know so that uh, people can come you know trainers can come look at, at trajan you know and he's just sitting there he's got you know just the blood on his hand his blood all over his lip his face is and like crazies everybody just sort of lost their collective mind um at that point it was it was hell breaking loose in basketball shorts right mike suggested rips his jacket off and he all but rips rick Hartz's head off you know the crazy start chanting you will pay um there was just a lot of uh a lot of venom in the crowd that day you know and for the next seven minutes duke absolutely punished clemson you know i went back in the chronicle archives and i was looking to see uh, you know what what people said at the time Shane Battier's quote was you know it's like when a mother bear finds out that one of her own was injured by a mountain lion the mother bear becomes a little incensed so Shane always had a sort of poetic way of trying to put things um so I went looking to see what Chris Carowell said because you know Chris Carowell was always the you know the, the concrete tough St. Louis kid who just you know absolutely led that team by example and just was, was not somebody you wanted to mess with so his best was a little less poetic but a little more on point he said anytime something like that happens where i come from it's time to play something like that happens on the playground and you respond and they absolutely did so for the next seven minutes duke absolutely takes it to clemson uh you know the tigers the tigers were knocked back you could see it they were just you know, you talk about a team being intimidated, and usually I don't talk about that much, but that was a hostile arena, and it got in their head. The next few possessions are whistled for six six fouls. Duke goes to the free throw line, hits free throw after free throw. They're 10 of 12 uh, to get the run started. They have another bucket in there. So with seven minutes to go, Clemson's up by two, two and a half minutes later, they're already down by 10. Uh, so Clemson coach uh, Larry Shiat, uh, in his, I think it was his first year there, uh, you know, call the timeout, but it, it just didn't matter. Um, they come out of the timeout. Will Avery gets a steal, goes in transition, gets a bucket, dukes up 12. The under four timeout, you know, comes. You think maybe they'll calm down. That didn't matter either. You know, the crowd just stayed on top of them. They were chanting, show no mercy, show no mercy, which was an old cheer they used to used to throw out at the end of games that were blowouts, you know, to keep egging the team on to, to just, just you know put the points on them but you know it, it, it seemed Taylor made for that moment um, so out of the timeout uh, Clemson actually got a couple of one-on-one one-on-one uh, one opportunities missed the front end of both uh, then Duke went to it in the half court Shane Batty drills a couple of threes McGetty hits a jumper Carewell goes to the basket another four points Clemson comes back down Batty picks up a charge on Adam Allen's box Clemson uh, crazy's absolutely losing mind uh, and then the last bucket comes on a little fadeaway jumper from Corey McGetty. 26 points. 26-0 run. Um, right before the half, Terrell McIntyre hit a three to bring it to a run. But that was the 99 Blue Devils at their baddest. It was a wrecking ball through a house of cards. You know, they trailed 32-30 before the run. They were on the second half just 36-30. And that one run made all the difference. You know, Clemson had turned the ball over 18 times in a single half. Uh, for Langdon, he had eight stitches at halftime before saying goodbye to his home crowd for one last time. 
That 26-0 run remains a part of the mystique of the 99 team and really the stand, the, the run by which other other runs are judged. Um, there were bigger ones, there were longer ones, um, but like 99 itself, nothing uh, nothing was ever quite was quite so dominant. Um, you know, Langdon would heal after that game. Uh, he would be back. He would miss the ACC tournament with a foot injury, but he came back. He played well the end of that season, had a great game against UConn in the championship game up until the end. Um, but Clemson never recovered. You know, 20 years later, that run is still part of Duke basketball lore, and uh, Tigers still haven't won in Cameron uh, since that day. Um, you know, and then they came back the next year, and it just continued. Uh, the next year, Duke put a 34-6 uh, to run on them in the 2000 team to end the half. They led 58-16 to at halftime. Uh, Clemson had a guy named Tomas Niggies, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing. I don't don't quite remember. And he got a technical in the first half for kicking Jason Williams. He later flipped off the crazies. So it was very much a continuation of that. But, you know, as Duke goes to take on uh, Clemson again, 20 years ago, uh, the birth of, uh, you know, one of the most famous and most lopsided uh, runs in Duke basketball. All right. If, so if I'm setting an over-under without looking at the schedule, unless you already have, and that's fine, um, of 2.5 January losses, what are you going with? Uh, I take the under on two and a half. That seems, I mean, I think there's going to be a game or two where, um, you know, this team has to go back to the drawing board. Um, but I don't know how they're strongly going to be tested early on. I mean, I don't have the schedule in front of me, but, you know, they do play the Virginia. I know the Virginia game, you know, is the first one there. And then they have to go to Florida State where Duke always plays uh, terribly. Usually when Duke is undefeated, you know, back in the late, um, you know, the 2000s, the last decade. Um, the Duke would always have these nice undefeated strings. You just have to look for when they had the game at Tallahassee, you know, if they were playing in Tallahassee that year, and it just seemed like that was a guaranteed loss. For whatever reason, they played terribly in Tallahassee. Um, so I think that'll be a challenge, and obviously have a good team there. But, um, you know, I don't I don't think beyond that. I think they, they win so many games by getting more bites at the apple than the other team. You know, they turn them over so well. They don't turn it over themselves. Um, and the offensive rebound pretty well. So those free possession battles are going to work for them. So, you know, I don't think they're going undefeated, but, um, you know, it would be a little, I think they'll get under two and a half. You know, I think two would be the, would be the high end of of what they're going to lose in, in, in January, unless there's a NC state game or something in there that, uh, another place where they, they tend to play poorly that, that sneaks in on us. It's always NC State, and you know what? There is no NC State January game. It's yeah. either NC State or Miami, or both, and they play neither. That's very interesting. So looking at it now, they uh, it's Clemson at home, Wake Forest away, Florida State away, Q's home, Virginia home, Pitt away, Georgia Tech home, Notre Dame away. That is their January schedule. So they hmm. – yeah, I mean, you know, you look at that Syracuse game and you start going, you know, two, three zone, two, three zone. Are they going to have that figured out by then? So, um, but, you know, Duke has played well against Syracuse and Cameron. Um, if it were at the Carrier Dome, maybe it's, you know, maybe you start leaning the other way. Um, but, uh, you know, and then the Virginia game is obviously going to be tough. But that one, the first one is in Cameron and the February game is in, um, I almost called it U-Haul, John Paul Jones Arena. It has been for, for quite a while. Um, so and I like I like the fact that they play Q's on Monday and then they get a break to Saturday to play Virginia. So plenty of time. Yeah, um, that's and they're both at home. 
So yeah, that's nice. that's that's nice. You know, and they played Virginia well at home. I mean, usually they pulled these games out. Even you know, you go back to the the Rashid Suleiman three pointer that bounced around, or you know, the the Grayson Allen uh, game winner against. Uh, you mean you mean that the the, uh, the travel fell? Yeah, uh, whichever way you prefer. Yeah, but the bucket went in and it counted all the same. So. Um, and then the Tyus, obviously. Yeah, well, and, but that was the way. That was the tie shot was at. Oh yeah, you're uh, right. John Paul right. Jones arena. So. Um, yeah, they they played them well. You know, they they lost the last one, but um, you know they typically played them well. Um, you know, in Cameron. So, you know, but again, I think there's still going to be a reckoning. I think there's going to be a game or two where they just they they look terrible and they lose by ten, and uh, you know everybody's screaming for somebody's head. You know, and they have to go back to the drawing board. It's just like the 2015 team. Now, 2015 it was defense. This year it'll probably be you know half court offense. It's even worse, and the, the transition offense doesn't. You know, work is a band-aid over it. They just don't generate enough turnovers. Um, but uh, I think you're going to have that kind of game where you have to go back to the drawing board. I don't even know that it's the worst thing. You know, that team, that 2015 team playing uphill after those losses to Miami and NC State, you know, I think really uh, in the long run uh, turned out to be fairly beneficial. You know, I'm not one of these guys who goes, oh, you need a loss because of the pressure. And whatever. I don't think that's really the case. I haven't talked to athletes and they really felt like that except you know sometimes after the fact when you're trying to build a story for why something didn't go right but you know I don't think anybody ever wants a loss but I think those two losses in terms of focusing the team and what they needed to work on and you know immediately after those two games went to the zone against Louisville in 2015 and then you built off of that baseline to go back to -to man-to-man and be a really good man-to-man team by the time the tournament rolled around I think it turned out to be very beneficial so I think you'll see those but yeah I don't think Duke's going to lose more than two in January. Have you, has your opinion changed overall about uh, how you feel based on expectations or just predictions or anything? For the season? I mean, I think I would say I'm uh, more positive at this point than uh, start of the year just because you didn't know. I didn't feel great about the defense coming into the year. I felt like this was going to be a challenge again, and it's been a challenge. And it's it's um, you know, it's it's just been a big question mark for Duke. I, I hope you've learned a valuable lesson. You doubted Jack, my Jack White prediction where he'd shoot threes because he only attempted like two prior, and you doubted me saying the defense would be good. I now hope you believe I will be right in everything I say going forward I will for the rest have of to your life. Review the podcast and see, yeah, if it was uh, how effusive you were in the praise of the defense. Because you know, it's just been a challenge for these guys and meshing, and it's not even so much about the talent; it's about being able to mesh. And we're talking about you know, talking on the defensive end and things like that. That's really, you know, the core of what it is. So, um, you know, but it's hard to take a man who calls uh, Trey Stone's pebbles too seriously. So, uh, you know. The most serious. The most serious. Yeah. Nobody's, more, nobody's more serious than me. Yeah. Um, all right. So the offense, especially the half core, is somehow worse than I thought. Um, but the defense, as good as I thought, because – and. I, I mean, if you, if whoever wants to listen back, which is no one, um, to that season preview, it, it a lot of it was based on the communication. I was so impressed with that and the fact that they worked together already, um, and just it just seemed different. Um, I think that was big, but I, I and I think that also and that will allow them to have a higher ceiling come March or come April. Um, wait, is the tournament? That's like second. Got to win in March before you get to April. You know, the got, uh, got championship you. game this year, I think, is uh, actually it might be the eighth this year or something like that. But it's always, uh, you know, it, it depends on how the the calendar breaks up. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the defense um, being better um, than uh, even I thought. I think that 
automatically raises the ceiling because yeah. that, I mean that we've seen so often the opposite be true with just based on talent, the offense is always going to get buckets no matter what. Now it's, they got to figure out something for the offense to get buckets in half court, but the defense it's much more trusted. Not totally. As I said, we still need, I, or I still would like to see them um, play against uh, more experienced, uh, high quality point guards. But I mean, this isn't the NBA. There's not point. There's not all-star point guards everywhere. The college isn't flooded with them. I mean, the offensive talent is going to be generally less than. Um, so I don't think they need to be perfect. And I think they've already shown enough to feel really good about it. So um, I would say my X factor moving forward player still cam my X factor just situationally. I would like to see what coach K can do in terms of in game game to game, just fluid kind of just changing things up, trying to create action, try um, putting guys in the right position based on their skill sets, not trying to have guys fit into this motion offense. I mean, everyone runs motion offense um, these days at this point, pretty much. So, But it's basically just kind of RJ just with the ball and everyone else watching or passing one pass and shoot. I want to see more creativity, and I think this team has it moving forward. So I think the situational or team X factor is Coach K and what he does with the offense. Um, so I'm going to go through. Uh, if I had to make a uh, New Year's resolution for RJ, I would say just uh, get get get, guy, get other guys more involved if able. Um, Cam, I would say have confidence that your teammates trust you and you don't have to be to try to do so much in such short spurts. Um, Trey, I would just say do whatever you can in half court to get the ball and try to initiate, even if it's not coming to you automatically, which is probably not what coach K would want. Um, he wants you to, to accept your role and to, uh, do what the offense says you should do. So I am, uh, I'm being insubordinate just by saying that, but whatever. Um, Zion, I'd like to see him be a little more selfish on offense, but just keep doing what he's doing. Jack White, um, keep doing what he's doing. He can't. He, I mean, he can't really improve on uh, how well he's playing. Javin, uh, Javin and Bolden, I haven't really talked a lot about them, but I think Javin, he's shown his foul rate's gone down a little bit in the last couple games, which is fantastic in Maui. He had like eight fouls in like 21 minutes at one point, and it's just hard to trust somebody like that on the court when they're constantly fouling and, as you said, twitchy. So I'd like to, so if he can keep it going um, just in terms of playing smarter but still keeping that aggression. I think he, he plays his role fantastically. Bolden, when the time comes for it, when he's playing against bigs, he can have one of those Auburn games, provide huge blocks, huge plays right there. Um, O'Connell, just keep working on that defense, the offense. Everyone knows he can he can heat up real quickly on offense. The key for him, focusing on that defense. Mike Buckmeyer, stop being trash. So uh, that's my New Year's resolutions for uh, each Duke player. I know there's some others like Rank. It was great to see Rank get some minutes early in some games. Totally unexpected. I think San Diego State, like everyone was in foul trouble, all the bigs. 
So he actually played a lot more than expected. One of my questions in the preseason preview was, will Vrank see legit minutes? And like right away, it almost seemed like he did. I wouldn't expect too many moving forward, but uh, it was good to see. Has Joey Baker, has that been official where he's redshirted? I mean, I feel like it has to be at this point. Well, it's not official until after the year. You you don't oh, you, you okay. petition the NCAA after the year, so um, nothing will be made official. I mean, I don't know if Duke would informally announce that they're not going to play him, but considering he's gotten zero minutes so far, I assume that's, um, you know, a, a settled, settled question. And, you know, they don't need him. I mean, there's nowhere to fit. It's the same thing with Vrank. Like, how do you get Vrank minutes? You, the only way you get Vrank minutes is if you decide to go big and then Bolden is in foul trouble. So, you know, a lot of these guys are the third options, um, you know, with a lot of, a lot of different cards that can be played. And that, you know, when we talk about defense, too, that's another nice thing about the defense. There's a lot of different cards that you can play uh, with this team. You're not locked into a single lineup. You know, if you're playing that experienced point guard and Trey absolutely can't get it done, you can put a Bolden in there. You cannot switch the five. You know, you can leave in that back layer of, of rim protection as you need it. If you want to switch one through five, you can put Delarier in there. Um, obviously, uh, you know, Jack White gives you a lot of defensive flexibility. He can defend you know, depending on who the five is, he could defend reliably from the five to the yeah, maybe blinking. You know, he could certainly get to the three. I don't know about, you know, the shooting guards, but, you know, he gives you some defensive, you know, versatility out there. So there's a lot of different pieces that, you know, Mike Krzyzewski can work with there. And we've seen him do that. You know, that's why um, Mark Lee's Bolden played so much against um, Auburn, you know, I don't think the Duke uh, de- defense on the perimeter did a great job of, of limiting penetration. If they're not, then you need rim protection in there. So, um, you know, there are a lot of different, uh, some different options there, which is, which is always a nice thing to, to have. Yeah. I mean, even Jordan Goldwire, I think if Trey has a game where he's in foul trouble or just, I mean, it'll happen throughout the year. He's a freshman still. I mean, no matter how great he looks, he might have a, I mean, Tyus had plenty of games where, he just didn't quite look like the Tyus we all remember. We remember those big moments. But I think uh, Goldwire, can uh, he can provide some really solid minutes. I see. I don't see him going away completely. Um, I mean, J- Justin Robinson, if needed, you know what he can do. Yeah, I, I think we've uh, pretty much covered it. So do you have any uh, – do you have anything else you would like to add? No, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a team that you know is is uh, is coming together. Obviously, there's still the challenge of the half court, right? This is what the question of the team is. Like all this stuff that we're talking about, it's all ancillary to the question of, you know, can they make the half court functional to survive in a lower possession game where they don't get a 30% turnover rate? Um, so I think that's really uh, that's really all it is, um, you know. And and there's there's still time to do it, you know. This is. Uh, we're only in December, you know, we're, we're wrapping up December. So we're starting the conference place. So this is a long, long way to go. The team will not, um, you know, look like it, it does, you know, some teams get better as the season wears on some teams get worse. Um, I think this team is in good shape because you have a good handle on the defense. Um, and, uh, you know, as the old saying goes, defense will travel, you know, it's, it's, it's a little easier to be consistently great defensive team. And you're going to have to do that again. You know, you think back to that 2010 team, they did not win the national championship against Butler, you know, through offense. That was not a good offensive uh, game, you know, despite the fact you had some, you know, uh, you know, Gordon Hayward and, you know, you, you had some uh, some talent on that floor. Um, that was a defensive game, um, you know, and Duke was able to win that through through defense, you know. 
Um, so that sort of thing will travel. So I think it's a good floor to be in. Defense and transition is a great floor to have now. Um, they just have to get a passable half-court offense, and I, I think it'll come together. I mean, Mike Krzyzewski is not blind to the challenges. There's always an adjustment that comes along. You know, we've seen him do radical things in the past. Playing zone last year certainly indicates a, a level of, um, you know, willingness to, to try different things. We talked about that Chris Carwell team in 97 where Carwell played center when, when Greg Newton wasn't getting the job done, um, and he, he took home a share of the ACC title. That team was an overachiever, so... Um, you know, and, you know, 2001, we talked about that team being so great in transition, you know, Duhon uh, going in for Nate James and, and starting at the end of that year, responding after Carlos Boozer broke his foot, you know, late in the year that year, um, Casey Sanders stepping in. So we've seen him change around and do different things. You know, that year he got faster. You could see that this year. You know, So um, I think they're in a great place. Um, you know, it won't be smooth sailing from here on out. There are going to be a, a, a few back to the drawing board losses, but um you know, I think uh, you feel as good about this team right now as any team at this point in the season that Duke has put forth since probably the 2013 team. Maybe you felt pretty good about it at this point because that was a very senior team. Um, you, you knew exactly what you had. I think you feel better about them than you did 2015. So, you know, it's a good place to be in, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So, uh so let me ask you, Coach K, he uh, he set the uh, all-time record on my birthday, which was uh, years ago, but uh, November 15th. How did it feel watching Duke pretty much uh, stink up the joint against Virginia Tech on your birthday a couple years ago? Uh, frankly, I don't remember, so... Uh, yes, you do. Don't lie. <laughs> I don't remember uh, which year we're talking about... Uh... Uh, I'm sure that was, that was that, two years ago. I'm sure I tweeted about it, and I'm sure we can go back in my timeline. And Don't you're you're just you're just trying to wipe out history, which can't be done. I will be darned if I remember. Um, so two years ago, so we're talking about uh, we're talking about the 2017 team. So that was Tatum. I was probably uh, talking about how much I like Jason Tatum, and no one else liked Jason Tatum at the time. 89-75. It was just an embarrassment, and your birthday was the cause of it. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, December 31st is a challenging day for a lot of people. So, um, you know, my apologies to uh, Jason Tatum. I hope he accepts, but I wouldn't blame him if he doesn't. All right, so basically what Ray and I are going to try to do, don't hold me to this because I, I don't want to make empty promises. It's on me as much as, as it is on Ray. When we don't record for a while, um, yeah, we this is a big overview, the non-conference recap, ACC preview, plus just the fact that I do a lot of projecting, and with the way that with this Duke team, it's been pretty tough to do it without legit sample size. I'm not just going to throw out takes just to have takes. So um, Ray and I are going to try to record – at least, uh, weekly, at least most weeks, we can't guarantee all of it, but um, each week, but we are going to do our best. And once we do that, then the pods are going to get shorter. It's going to be more concise, but it will relate specifically more directly to Duke's recent games and what's happened, not just skill sets and, and stuff like that. It's going to be what's happened, what needs to improve, um, what we saw, and just a lot more direct. So hopefully we can get these out sooner to you. If not, um, I never said this. I never mentioned it. We both have busy lives, raise roller skating, if not every day, multiple times a day. So hopefully you can fit time 
for the pod into your roller skating shenanigans. But uh, for now, thanks so much, Ray, for for joining me and recapping everything that's gone on. Um, I hope to do it again soon. Duke, uh, they play with Clemson on Saturday, um, so that should be a fun start to the year. And uh, yeah, it is your birthday now, so happy birthday to you and uh, happy New Year's to everyone when it'll be New Year's when this comes out. And uh, we will be talking to you soon. A- any last words, Ray? Strap your skates on, y'all. Like roll bounce, little, little bow wow and roll bounce. So I will exactly be talking. Like what to I was you going soon. for right there, yeah. I'll be talking. I'll be talking to you guys soon. Um, follow follow on iTunes or subscribe on iTunes. Rate review. Do what you do. All that good stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll be talking to you soon. <laughs>